Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad who's officially Nihongo Jozu, Yanatan. <laughs> Do you want to say hi, Yanni? This whole fucking episode is going to have major, major... I just came back from my semester of study abroad <laughs> vibes. You know those people in like fucking college that would just go abroad and then come back and just be like, I am from that country now. <laughs> this is what this podcast episode is. Listen, you're the I one setting those it. expectations, man. <laughs> you're the one that's going to be talking about it. So if you come back and you're like, man, I'm Japanese now. I guarantee you I will never say the words I am Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anime news, time for us to catch up since we have obviously taken a three-week break, not from actually releasing episodes because we are good podcasters who make content ahead of time to release while one of us is on vacation, but we haven't recorded in a while, so there's a lot of news to get through, so let's it just get right It does feel like it's been it. so, so long. Like, I mean, it actually has been like a month almost. Yeah. It's weird. There's like a void in my life that is now only filled by talking to you about bullshit. Anyways. I mean, this is the first time we're recording in person too in quite a while, which I misattributed to being like two weeks ago. And I'm like, wait, no, that was actually like a month <laughs> and a half ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. All right, anime news. Please do not stop and talk about every single thing that I have to say because we'll never get through this episode. And in three and a half hours, three and a half hours, two and a half hours, we have a screening of The Boy and the Heron to get to. So we better fucking finish this episode before that. What's the other name? Uh, how do you live? How do you live? Right, 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 right. <laughs> First piece of news. There's a Terminator anime series that is apparently being done over at Production IG. I'm so excited for this one. Are you actually? No, I've never heard about it. I just wanted to stop. Okay, I do not give a fuck about Terminator. Are you serious? Yeah. No, why would I care about that? I don't know. I'm just excited that it's being done by Production IG, which is so heavily invested and has spent so much time perfecting sci-fi anime that having it do Terminator, I think is just another step along the way to being one of the best sci-fi producing studios out there. Maybe they'll bring Arnold Schwarzenegger oh, back fuck for you. it. I don't know. <laughs> another sequel got announced. The first one wasn't a sequel, so I don't know why I said another. For next year 2024 and that's actually great pretender i did not see that coming i don't know if a lot of people were expecting or hoping for that but i really enjoyed most of great pretender the last arc wasn't admittedly the best but i had a lot of fun with it i think it's a pretty great production over at studio wit doing an original so hopefully they hit it out of the park with season two really you didn't know that was coming because i saw the first episode at anime nyc i knew it was coming in the sense that they like teased the yeah fact that there was going to be a teaser for something at Anime NYC right before they then went ahead and anyways announced <laughs> season two. But before any of that got announced at all, I did not know that it, that, that was coming. It out. is still unclear. And we'll talk about this more when I talk about Anime NYC in this episode. It's still unclear what format this is going to take because the president of Wit Studio was there and basically mentioned that this is going to be coming to theaters in the U.S. And so it's unclear if this is going to be a movie format, if this is going to be a 13-episode anime or something like that. But yeah, at Anime NYC, we did get the world premiere of the quote-unquote first episode of this sequel. So really excited for it. I'll talk more about it. But it looks and sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, and, and Great Pretender did from the get-go. This is going to probably be some classic recent anime trend thing of taking episodes and just making a theatrical release yeah. out of them for whatever reason. But anyways, I am really excited for that. Demon Slayer showed you can make money. Yeah. 
yeah, it did indeed do that. <laughs> we got official news that Tower of God season two is coming out July 2024. I don't care that much about you Tower of me God, with to that. be honest. <laughs> we also got news that Naoko Yamada's short film titled Garden of Remembrance is coming to theaters in Japan in 2024. And we actually got a first small little teaser trailer for that. That did actually premiere at some really small festivals in Europe, very strangely, last year. So I know a few people that were there got to see those, but I'm, as always, excited to see more Naoko Yamada. I hope it gets a theatrical release here, but I don't know with a specific short film. We'll see. She's okay. Why do you like this? <laughs> <laughs> the magical girl and her evil lieutenant used to be arch enemies. Got an anime Not adaptation announcement at Studio Bones. And the reason I'm mainly mentioning this is because it gained a bit of traction on social media because people were, of course, as Shonen fans tend to be, Stupidly mad that Bones wasn't adapting another one of their favorite Battle Shonen series. Obviously, Bones has quite a bit of Battle Shonen adaptations, but they've also done a lot of other stuff. And this specifically is a posthumous adaptation for a mangaka that actually passed away. It was in the works to actually adapt this much earlier. The mangaka ended up dying, so it got delayed. And the staff at Bones, the team for this, is made up of exclusively women. So it is a very seemingly cool kind of passion project. And of course... The Shonen fans were out in full force complaining that whatever they want animated is not animated, which is obviously fucking annoying. So just for that, I'm going to watch all of this now. I am excited for this one. I love Studio Bones, especially after having done Soul Eater. That's such a nostalgic anime for me. This year at Anime NYC, they also had a 25th anniversary celebration event on the Crunchyroll stage and also premiered the first episode of Metallic Rouge, which is their upcoming series this winter I'm season. excited for that. Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> we'll talk more about that too. All right. Fucking downer Ravi over here. <laughs> I'm just being realistic, man. Like I, I love Bones, but I mean, again, that doesn't mean everything they do is like fucking the best thing since sliced bread. I don't need it to be the best thing ever. It's just, you know, I had a cool key visual at Studio Bones. I was looking forward to it, but apparently I fucking shouldn't. Be. It's setting high <laughs> expectations that I don't know it's going to meet. I'll put it that way for now. All right. <laughs> We also got the first or an updated key visual for Hibika Euphonium Season 3. That's airing April 2024 from Kirani. We'll talk a little bit more about UFO in the trip to Japan section because I did get to see some UFO stuff. That amazingly just up to Kirani standards apparently is actually already done. The whole production for it is done. Like the series is just completed, which is just amazing. And again, more studios should just be like Kirani. But it's not the world we live in, unfortunately. It's okay. Are you going to say anything positive about anything this fucking episode? <laughs> I am actually excited for that. I do want to see, you know, we talked about this at length, ad nauseum, already on the pod. My only qualm with Hibiki Euphonium is that I want to see more depth into all of the other characters. I want them to actually go deep into the relationship rather than just Yuri baiting us so far. And also I want more music. And so all of those things... Again, every new season is another chance to explore those concepts and add more to the story. And I am excited for this. I really think that Naoko Yamada is a fantastic director. And to have another opportunity to showcase her work is, again, another opportunity to just watch something amazing for us. I'm glad you said that. I have bad news for you. She's not working on it because she's at Science Art now. But, you know, it'll probably still be good. Retract. Retract statements. <laughs> not excited for this anymore. <laughs> 
the thing you are excited for, and that I am definitely excited for, is that Blue Lock Episode Nagi, the spinoff movie, is releasing April 19th in Japan. I got a new key visual and a trailer. We both don't really like Blue Lock. Hey, hey, I will hey, say, hey, speak for yourself. I know you don't like Blue Lock. I had Lock. a good time. The thing, <laughs> that doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> the thing I will say that is actually amazing is that some of the stats came out on most sold manga of the year in Japan. For the past two years, I think it was JJK. For the two years before that, it was Demon Slayer really nicely capitalizing on the adaptations, the anime adaptations for those series. Otherwise, it's like almost always One Piece. And yeah. then there's like one year of fucking like Nana in there. Yeah. So typically, it's a battle shonen. And it is kind of a testament that this year it was Blue Lock, actually. Which is also a battle shonen. You're not wrong. <laughs> but it is kind of a testament to how well the marketing for that series came off, yeah. releasing right up through the World Cup and apparently just being a hit that people really liked. So it is noteworthy, even though I personally feel it is an insult to soccer itself. <laughs> the conspiracy theories are off the chains with this, being like, oh, the Japan national team is wearing blue lot kits and all that shit. So and like, dumb. <laughs> and so again, this is, I think, in all ways, a battle shonen. There's nothing else that this can be. Like, yeah, it can be sports. You know, we're not fooling ourselves. This is not a real sports anime. This is a battle shonen. Yeah. And because of that, because of all the elements of battle shonen that people love, it has gotten the popularity that we're expecting with a battle shonen. Yeah, can't take that away from it for sure. Uh, we also got an announcement that Mario Kata's new movie, Maboroshi, is coming to Netflix on January 15th. So this movie actually already came out in theaters in Japan. It is not a great sign that an original movie that had a lot of marketing behind it did not get a theatrical release in the U.S. and instead is coming straight to Netflix. Apparently, this movie bombed pretty hard in Japan to the point that I read that the advertisements for it were like, memed to death because they were found super annoying by most of the population. I'm still excited to see it. I don't think we've talked about this. I talked about this a little bit on Discord. So I had a chance, a little bit of downtime to watch her other movie, Machia, recently. I did not enjoy Machia. Really? <laughs> like, at all. Wow. You know, I still haven't <laughs> seen it yet, but the ratings have been so high. I'm surprised you didn't like it. People really like that movie. There's not enough time here for me to talk about adequately why I don't like that movie, maybe once this comes out and we get to see it, I'll say a little bit more about why I didn't really enjoy the movie. But I think I'm just learning that Mario Kata projects are not for me, given that she's written things like Anohana, for example, and other series like that, that I just tend to not like, even though a lot of other people like. So I am now less excited <laughs> for this than I was before I watched Makia, but definitely still give it a shot. The straight to Netflix thing is not great. I mean, all of her works don't have to have the same exact themes or whatever. Like, we don't all have to be Mokoto Shinkai out here. But I have been really excited to watch Makia for a long, long time. Well, temper your expectations. <laughs> I think I'm going to like it a lot. I hope you do. I'm not sure if you will. I'll be interested to hear what you say about it. We also got Oshinoko Season 2's first key visual that's coming out in 2024. Now, officially, we had the sequel announcement, of course, but not the actual year confirmed. So that's already next year. Makes sense that they're going to capitalize on how much of a success that was. And I will say, Oshinoko fucking hits it out of the park with the key visuals. Like, the key visuals look so fucking good. I was at Barnes & Noble earlier today looking at the manga covers, and they also look amazing. So the marketing around Oshinoko's, I think, is... Man gets back from Japan and goes manga shopping in the U.S. Bro, like, what is wrong with you? 
<laughs> you want me to buy manga in Japanese? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Can't read it. <laughs> I want you to buy it straight from the source. <laughs> I haven't finished Oshinoko yet because that was another show that me and my, you know, I keep adding to the list of shows that me and my partner started and just never finished. We finished Attack on Titan. We're currently making our way through JJK along with apparently all of Twitter, who's just spoiling it for me, which makes me actually want to die. I have already had two major events spoiled for me, and I am so mad. I was just absolutely fucking mauling to Yanni right before we started airing about how mad I am. I wish you could see the look on my face. It is a fucking travesty how bad Twitter has gotten with spoilers lately. It's really bad. It's been really bad. And specifically with JJK, I feel like it's worse than with any other series. I don't fucking know why, but it is what it is. One announcement that absolutely stunned me was the Dan to Dan anime adaptation announcement, which I know is a manga that a lot of people like. The mangaka was actually an assistant of Fujimoto's when he worked on Fire Punch, and Dan to Dan is his first battle shonen series by himself. And I know people really, really like it. It's apparently kind of a batshit crazy battle shonen. And that's been announced at Sign Saru coming out next year with music by Kensuke Ushio, who I love. So I am super, super excited for that. I did not expect Sign Saru of all studios to take up a battle shonen, but I'm really excited to see what they do with it. You're putting them into boxes they don't deserve, man. <laughs> they just don't tend to do them. That being said... <laughs> The trailer for Dandadan is probably one of the best trailers I've ever seen. It's so good. It's just hard for me to describe why that is because there's nothing like cinematic about it. It's not like a five minute long fucking Christopher Nolan trailer or anything like that. <laughs> but like the music, the sound design just fits so well with the show. It is incredibly hype. Like it really builds up the atmosphere for what Dandadan is allegedly is according to everything that the manga readers have been saying and it, it seems really true to form and it does seem like a passion project it seems like science saru is really giving their all for this show and the trailer really is in the spirit of that it just looks and sounds so good i swear to god though if i have to read one more oh the don to don adaptation is what chainsaw man should have looked oh, like yeah fucking post i will end it all <laughs> it could have been better it's not even that I necessarily disagree with the sentiment. It's just that I saw it like 80 times the day that the trailer got announced. And I'm like, Ugh. we talked about this with Attack on Titan once it switched over from Wit to Mappa. I kind of do disagree with the sentiment. Like what we got was fucking amazing. And people complaining about it is just like, oh, yeah, man, like it could have been marginally better. Dude, fuck off. Like, <laughs> you know, this is the thing, you know, we talk about with Mappa and Mappa sucks. We all know that. But even with JJK this season, people are like, oh, man, like the map is fucking up the production because of these little small things I noted here. The animators are fucking killing themselves to put out something that still looks amazing. And people complaining about the quality of it dropping, I, I still get annoyed by. Yeah, I will say those cases are slightly different. The JJK case has been people loving the style but being annoyed at MAPPA for killing the animators. I think that's been like generally well-placed. The Chainsaw Man one is just disagreement with the director's vision, which again, I can understand where those people are coming from, but I personally still do respect the vision that they went for with the anime adaptation, but I know a lot of people don't feel the same. I think both have been great so far. You know what? Honestly, I am going to partially disagree with that because I did see a number of threads on Twitter that made me actually want to put my head through a fucking window where people were like, oh, my God, this like two millisecond clip of JJK just looks so bad. Like the animators need to work harder. Oh, that's fucking dumb. It is genuinely fucking incredible 
how people are watching this stuff and being like, I know the animators are already killing themselves, but let's just keep working them to the bone. Like no, anybody that says bad. anything anti the animators work on this season of JJK is fucking stupid. We can't let that <laughs> slide. <laughs> okay, we got a Jose anime adaptation called Nina the Starry Bride. I know people that know the source material are really excited for that, so I wanted to mention it as well. We got the first trailer for the Suicide Squad Isekai at Studio Wit. You're probably excited for that. Hey, why do you sound not excited <laughs> for that? Why would I be excited why for that? Why wouldn't you be? It looks fucking sick. I don't care about Suicide Squad, and I don't care about Isekai. <laughs> so why would I care about them together? Man, just because it's an Isekai doesn't mean it's bad. I didn't say it was going to be bad. You implied it. No, I'm just not the target audience. <laughs> You didn't want to say anything about that? All right, nice. No, I don't need to follow up on that. What do you want this to be, a 40-minute long discussion when we have fucking no. the bird and the heron to watch? And like, <laughs> I got to go watch Robert Pattinson, man. Come on, get through this. I'm working on it. Okay, we are actually almost at the end. Rascal Does Not Dream, that franchise, got an announcement, which is that the college arc is getting animated. I don't know how somehow this series got its like first original 13 episode anime adaptation then three sequel movies two of which have not come out in the u.s yet and now another sequel that is coming out in some form i don't think they announced the form but like it is actually amazing i mean we just talked about the series in our cloverworks episode it's actually amazing how much staying power this franchise is getting i mean it's a good show i think at the end of the day we did have major qualms about it which we talked about in our cloverworks episode but it is a good show and and i think a lot of people we're emotionally attached to the show because, again, it does talk about something that is personal for so many people in that coming-of-age moment in adolescence. Yeah, we talked about it in the Cloverworks episode. There are a lot of things I enjoyed about it, especially when I watched it. But there's a lot of series that I like that never get any sequels, let alone now a fourth one. So <laughs> I guess it's successful. Name by, one. By some metrics. <laughs> I can't. Attack on Titan. <laughs> Okay, last two pieces of news. There's a new anime original movie being done by the creators of Anohana, so I'm going to love it, titled Fururu, and it's being done at Cloverworks in 2024. I don't know anything else about it, that's all. And Ascendance of a Bookworm, an isekai that somehow you haven't watched, the third part is actually being done over at Studio Wit, which I don't think was an expected announcement. They haven't worked on it at all in the past, but they are taking it over. It seems like moving forward, so... Studio I don't know if that's something all the you're announcements watch, but... out right now. <laughs> I'm happy about that. Again, it's a studio that I really look forward to their stuff coming out. So let's see how it goes. I said that was all the news, but there is one more piece of news. Of course there is. There always and is. that piece of news is that we went viral. Oh, <laughs> I was going to talk about this later. Okay, I'll save it. I'll save it. Are you just going to edit that out now? <laughs> no, no. That was the teaser. We went viral. We're going to talk about it in probably like 10 minutes. <laughs> So on today's episode, we're stepping back from our regularly scheduled anime content to discuss something even more at the essence of otaku culture, Yanni's pilgrimage to Japan. As a brief aside, we'll first have a quick chat about this year's Anime NYC before finally getting into my official interview with Yanni about his trip, how it matched up to expectations, and what not to miss on your own trip to Japan. So let's get into it. So, Yanni, can you confirm for me, 
just how much do you fucking hate Undead Unluck? <laughs> so is this where I should talk about it? You stole my thunder, man. <laughs> I did. That should not be in your news content. <laughs> I told you I was going to rant about it. Yeah, here, 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 in this time <laughs> I give you to rant about it. Okay, you've given me the time, so now I'm going to do a little bit of story time and a rant. I'm going to keep this brief, but if you follow us on Twitter, which if you don't, you should. We typically post these little audiograms every Friday. It's usually just a little clip from a recent episode, and we say something about some series, some director, whatever. It's just some content, right? A little bit of extra engagement, you know? And typically, we post these out, and a few people like it, people that follow us. Sometimes it breaks a little bit out of our immediate follower range. That is, of course, the goal. And sometimes we even get more views, you know, if we've are posting a clip with a guest or something that a guest ends up liking, then it goes out to their followers and we get a little bit more engagement. But normally that's kind of about it. You know, we post it and like a few people listen to it, we maybe get some comments and that's all, right? So I batch produced a few of these that I was going to post while I was gone in Japan because I didn't want to make them there. And I posted one from our fall first impressions episode talking about Undead Unluck, which if you didn't listen to that episode, is not a series that I enjoyed the first few episodes of. I enjoyed them very much from an artistic directorial perspective, but my main point in the clip was basically like, wow, I really like Yuki Ase as a director. I don't really love the source material that he's been given both here and in Fire Force. I wish he was working on other things that I enjoyed a little bit more, but I still enjoy the artistic approach he takes to Battle Shonen. And that was basically a little bit more ranty than that, maybe, you know, a little bit more inflammatory, but that was the idea. So I post this clip out, I go off on my merry way, and somehow this tweet reached the core, the hardcore Undead on Luck fandom. <laughs> this tweet somehow got like over 70,000 views in the span of like three days, <laughs> which is like way more than anything we've ever posted before. And... It pretty much was driven by all of the Undead Unluck fans telling us that we're fucking stupid, that we don't understand why this series is so great, and that we should go kill ourselves. <laughs> there was a lot of kill yourselves, yeah. There is a lot. Anyways, all of that to say, we went a little viral for sure. I know our Discord had a good laugh about it, tracking all of the different comments and pointing stuff out. The comments, I guess, ranged from like, okay, some people just being like, L take, you can't appreciate good anime. You know, that's fine. You like your series, <laughs> fair play. To, like, the absolute deranged of someone looked up my fucking Mal profile and was like, damn, this person clearly got their anime taste from Reddit and can't think critically for themselves. I'm like, okay. <laughs> to, like, the more deranged, like, literally, you should go kill yourself because you didn't like the same cartoon as me. Yeah. And then there were, like, a few people, obviously drowned out in the noise, who were actually trying to engage a little bit, who were more like, okay, obviously you didn't say a ton that's expansive about why you didn't like it in this clip. What actually did you not enjoy? Blah, blah, blah. Obviously, I didn't respond to those people because they were drowned out with, you know, the other fucking 80 quote retweets that were like <laughs> absolutely dragging us. <laughs> and mostly me, obviously, since I was the one speaking and you haven't seen any of Undead Unluck so far. So all of that to say, that was, I think, our first experience ever going viral in any way, getting dragged in quote retweets. That happens to a lot of bigger creators with kind of any opinion that they have. And we are pretty small creators, so we've avoided that until now. But it was some sort of learning experience, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. 
I'll hop in to say that I felt really bad for you because most of the hate was targeted at you being the one that had seen Undead Unlock and talked about it. You didn't have a take in there. No, I didn't. And especially given the fact that, again, you're you know a big fan of the director. You were talking about how the fact that you would like to see better content go his way. And you got absolutely fucking thrashed. And honestly... You were in Japan at the time, so I was like, you're like 12 hours time different from me. I'm at Anime NYC, so I don't have time to actually go and read through it. And I'm walking around the the expo floor, and I'm looking at the tweets going like, what the fuck is going on out here? And like, yeah, you're right. You know, 90% of the tweets and the quote root tweets were people being like, I hope fucking Bakavanter gets testicular torsion. And then then there there are some some fucking absolutely wild takes but this is what happens when you give 12 year olds anonymity to say whatever they want right and then there are some people that are like other podcasters being like oh man like i really wish they had a more nuanced take about this clearly they haven't seen enough of the show to have a take on this they really should have watched more before giving this preliminary opinion motherfucker it's called a first impressions episode for a reason it's so that we with our limited time have the ability to tell whether or not we want to continue watching this show. If our first impression is poor, we don't want to continue watching this show. That's why we'll put out that first impression. And if any viewers care about our opinions, which I don't know why you would, because we're two random fucking people on the internet, but if you do care about our opinions, you could take that with a grain of salt and decide for yourself whether you want to watch it or not. Just because we don't want to watch it doesn't mean that it's a bad show. It just means that it doesn't make up for our tastes. There are also other people out here being like, oh man, anime content has gotten so fast fashion-y. And you're like, again, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? I can't believe they would say that to me, the utmost fucking completionist who's going to watch all 24 episodes of this. By the way, I had watched all five episodes that were out before giving this opinion. And since then, I have caught up. It does not get better. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say that too loudly. But, you know, I will give credit to the people that were like, yeah, this was not a fully formed opinion. The clip itself was definitely a little bit ranty. In the episode itself, we talk about it a little bit more expansively. But as you said, it's a first impression. So we talk about our first impressions. It's not a deep analysis style of episode, which we tend to do on most of our other episodes. Anyways, if you like Undead Unluck, that's great. Good for you. If you're asking me, I would like Yukiyase to work on other content. Of course, that is not for me to decide. And... You know, just go enjoy your show. Don't let yourself get butt hurt by random podcasters on the internet not liking the thing that you like. We don't all have to like the same thing. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think at good. this point, we're definitely falling into engaging <laughs> with this bullshit too much. But I know this is the first time. It I is. think that if this ever happens in the future, I think we probably won't make it into our content. But no. this being the first time that Yanni actually got fucking demolished online and then even <laughs> i was catching strays being like yeah his like, partner didn't say anything just said yeah i probably won't go watch it <laughs> yeah if my fucking friend and co-host says don't go watch the show i probably won't go watch it unless it's a fucking etchy isekai in which case i don't give a fuck what your opinion is <laughs> i mean i didn't like the groping parts of this oh yeah you got called out for being a pedophile like 19 <laughs> times for lucky monogatari too so they were like he didn't like the groping part of this show but he likes monogatari it's like okay I don't like the groping parts of any shows. It's just that some shows have other content that makes it worth watching the parts that I don't like. Undead Unluck, unfortunately, not one of them. Anyway. That's enough about this. If you want a good laugh, you want to see me get dragged in some quote retweets, go to our Twitter page and uh, click on the quotes. You'll have a fun time engaging with Twitter. (laughs) All right. Enough about that. Tell me a little bit about 
Anime NYC. I will say at the outset that I have no right to say this because I was in Japan for three weeks. But the weekend that you went to Anime NYC, I actually was a little bit jealous because you got to meet so many people from our Discord server and our Discord community who are all awesome, by the way. I think we've talked many times before about having a really awesome, tight-knit Discord community. So we're really, really grateful for that. And I've met some of the people there, but you got to meet a few more that we had never met before. And I was actually a little bit jealous. <laughs> a little bit jealous. Yeah, honestly, this year's Anime NYC was probably the best one I've been to. And not because the panels were much better or Artist Alley was much better, which it kind of was. It's because I wasn't there. <laughs> it was because you were not there. Exactly. No, it's because I finally got to put a face to so many names from our Discord community. And you know, I'll say this later again, and I've said this before in person to you and also on the podcast, but the community is what makes this worth it. Like initially, we started off doing this for ourselves and we do still mainly do this for ourselves. But when it's fucking 3 a.m. in the morning and I know that 5 a.m. this podcast comes out and I'm not going to hit that deadline, what pushes me the extra mile, and I'm sure the same is true for you as well, is the people listening to us and interacting totally. with us. And so to actually see those people in real life and you know see how excited they were to hang out and go around Anime NYC together made all of that shit worth it. And so that was so much fun. I'll start off talking about Anime NYC in the way that I always talk about Anime NYC, which is my favorite part, Artist Alley. So I'm going to do this much the same way I did for Comic-Con by sending you some of the many, many pieces that I ended up buying to my partner's chagrin. <laughs> so let's do this. I'm not surprised. I walked around <laughs> the all. artist floor. <laughs> And this was with a few members of our Discord community. And I actually got told that I was a bad influence because I was making them buy too many pieces too. <laughs> because when I walk around Artist Alley, it is my favorite part of any convention, hands down. It's Bro, so cool to see the, the pieces that people put out. On that fay is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. before we get into this, right? Like Anime NYC. I like even more than New York Comic Con because it is all about anime. Comic Con has a ton of content that I don't always go into that I'm not really that excited about, which is like all the Marvel shit, DC shit. Like I, I will watch that, but I'm not super excited about it. Anime NYC is 100% focused on anime and otaku culture. And it's great to go around Artist Alley and see the density of pieces. It's so cool to go to the expo floor and to panels and see artists and directors and producers and other people coming from Japan. And so I was really excited to go this year. You could tell that the excitement was still there as it's been in previous years. The announcements kept coming that Anime NYC is getting more space at Javits Center, is going to be expanding soon. The pre-sale for next year has already come out. So you could tell there's like a buzz that anime keeps on growing within New York City and around the world. And I was so excited to see that this year. Overall, I think Artist Alley was better this year than it was last year. I don't know why, but the content there just seemed a little more diverse. I loved the pieces this year. I picked up more stuff this year than I have previously. The panels this year, I think, were a little worse than last year. I really liked some of the content that was done last year, especially the trigger panels panel. panels last year were good. Yeah. yeah, the panels last year were amazing. Like, the trigger panel last year was amazing. The movie premieres the year before that were amazing. And just, I didn't see as much of that this year. 
And some of the organizational parts of Anime NYC just didn't make sense to me. And that seems to be true every year. Like the fucking line con that we had the first year that we went, which was two years ago. Gosh. This year it was very smooth. It was done really well. So props to them for that. But some other aspects of organization, which I'll talk about, especially with Crunchyroll stage, just did not make sense to me. Back to Artist Alley. So the first piece that I picked up, which I just sent over to you, is this Cowboy Bebop movie poster. And this one looks fucking amazing. I will post all of these on our Discord, by the way. So if you're interested in seeing these, go look at them there. But this is like a very grungy, dark, noir vibe for Cowboy Bebop. Faye looks fucking hot in this picture. That was a 10 out of 10 for me, which is exactly why I picked this up. <laughs> I think this is... Probably my favorite piece that I picked up, besides the last one that I'll show you. The next one is one that is a complement to the evolution of Mecha that I picked up last year, but they had an evolution of Magic Girls this year. And what really stood out to me is that it had Panty and Stocking in it as well, which when I saw that, this was an insta-buy for me. Nice. I really like this. Yeah. This starts all the way back from Princess Night in 1953 and goes up until... Kill a Kill from 2013, and just showing Macho Girls, including Revolutionary Girl Utena, showing, let's say, Princess Tutu, Powerpuff Girls even. And so just, I love this piece. The art style is so, so cute. One of my favorite pieces too. The next one, and this picture doesn't do it justice, but this is a picture of Howl's Moving Castle. And the print, the way this artist got the print printed, when you move it around, it actually refracts light in different ways. Mm. So it looks like there's like interesting scales on it. And it's just such a beautiful piece. Yeah, it's really cute. Mid-movie cute print. Exactly. I was <laughs> so between the one for Howl's Moving Castle and the one for Spirited Away. And my girlfriend got so mad at me when I just stood there for like 20 <laughs> minutes being like, should I get Spirited Away or should I get Howl's Moving Castle? And she's like, Come the fuck on. Luckily, this you know, this artist was very nice and was like, listen, take your time to decide. I was kind of blocking the store from other people. And I was like, I'm just going to stand on the side here and like try and decide this. And it took me like literally 15 minutes. My partner is losing her mind. This is another really nostalgic piece for me. Nice. So I think two years ago, I bought an Ava print and I bought a lot of Ava prints in my time, but I bought an Ava print which was a piece that showed from the collab, I think, with Fila, which showed uh, Asuka with like her shoe in the front in this like really cool like streetwear. And this is the same artist that did that. Instead, this artist this time did Soul Eater. And Soul Eater is such a nostalgia show for me. And I really want them to have a Brotherhood adaptation of it that I had to get this piece. Really I love cool. the way that they do like the color categories and the color palette somewhere on the piece. And you can see it at the bottom here. Yeah, I think I remember this artist. Actually, I think my partner also picked up something from them. I think it's their Spirited Away piece. The Spirited I'm Away print, sure. I think, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that one's hanging in our apartment. And yeah, it looks really good. Yeah. I had to pick a cyberpunk print up. So I picked this one of Night City. Holy ass. <laughs> Round two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what the fuck is her name? Lucy. Oh, yeah. Lucy's ass is on full display in this picture. I mean, it is the centerpiece of the entire composition. Literally, so yeah. I had to pick it up. <laughs> looks but it looks, looks really sick, cool. Yeah. yeah, like the entirety of Night City is on display here. Like You really get a vibe for the sci-fi, like, gamey aspects of it, which I loved. I'm going to send this to you, and it's kind of a spoiler for One Piece, so don't pay too much attention to it. <laughs> but 
this artist has actually been getting some traction online in Anime NYC. I'm loving it. I love that they had so many cool prints out. This is a One Piece print from, for those of you that have seen One Piece or even the live action, if you haven't seen the anime, it's the part where Nami is on the ground and Luffy gives her his hat. And this is the most memorable moment in all of One Piece for me, which considering that I've watched like 800 episodes and this is within the first 40 is saying a lot. How do you want me to drown all of that out? (laughs) I fucking love this, man. Don't look too deeply into it because it kind of spoils it, but it's just a beautiful composition. I love the art style. It's just very, very cool. I like it. I gave you a piece, which if you want to talk about it, well, you just sent me another one, so you'll talk about that one. I'll, talk, talk, about about I'll okay. talk about it after. Okay. So Robbie very, very nicely got me a print, which this man always picks up little surprises for me when I'm not on things, which is just very nice. And he's very thoughtful about giving people gifts. But he picked up a paprika print and has the main girl who's fucking named from the movie. I do not I remember. I can't remember that shit either. So it doesn't really matter. Standing in the middle of like a crowd of people Really, really cool art style. My partner also loves all Satoshi Kon movies, and we've definitely wanted some Satoshi Kon-inspired artwork at some point to put in our apartment. So we're both going to love that. Definitely going to go up on the wall somewhere. Looks really, really cool. I'll post that one in the Discord as well. I was so close to keeping that for myself, and I was like, I got to give it to Yanni. I got to part with this. Um, Brennan was also there. I think got multiple prints from this artist. That was the same artist that did the piece that I just sent you, which is this incredible other Ava streetwear print. This one shows Shinji, again, leaning back against a wall that has a ton of graffiti and Polaroids on it, which if you look even more closely, you can see that some of the Polaroids are like of the quote-unquote yaoi romance that existed within Ava. As soon as Brennan saw that, Brennan's like, I'm fucking getting this. (laughs) Oh, you're telling me the guy with the Shinji Kaoru tattoo wanted to get that? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) And so this artist also had prints for Asuka and Ray, and I was nice. so close to picking up multiple, and I was like, no, no, I got to hold back. I got to pick up just one because I can't have too many Ava prints. I already have yeah. like five. I asked you before this how many Ava prints you have, and you're like, yeah, I don't know. Too many. <laughs> this was a spur-of-the-moment print for me, which makes it hurt even more what's going on within JJK right now. I already have a Lost in Paradise print which shows the characters dancing from the ending. That is still one of my favorite endings ever. I just love the song. I love the vibe of it. And so another Lost in Paradise print from JJK, just showing all the characters around a table. It looks like celebrating Nanami's birthday. It's just fucking amazing. I love the cuteness of this. Yeah, it's really cute. I really like that. And the way they drew Nobara is just 10 out of 10. All right, last two. I told you that I picked up another Ukiyo-e print. I have one other print from Bryce Co. that illustrates nice. Samurai Champloo. And I love Samurai Champloo. It's one of my favorite anime ever. So once I saw this print, I had to get it. This is one that shows Mugen ordering some like dango from a stall while the other characters, like, I forget the names. I don't have that one for you. <laughs> The girl of Faye. No, is it Faye? No, that's... No, Faye's Cowboy Bebop. Bebop. <laughs> anyway, whatever. The girl is stealing them from the side and the other samurai is in the back with his like head in his hands being like, yeah. what the fuck is going on? Very I just love the, the composition of this. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I really thought about giving this one to you too. <laughs> I keep it for keep yourself. I don't I know what it is, but keep it for myself. yourself. 
Wow. So I sent this to you actually on Twitter. Really? You've sent me a lot of free I've art. I've sent you so. a lot of art on Twitter. <laughs> I sent you this piece on Twitter, and I specifically said, if I see this at NMNYC, I'm going to insta-buy this. I insta-buy And you did. <laughs> and I did. So this is a Freerun print. shows Freerun standing in the foreground, looking away while all of the blue flowers that she makes for, what the fuck is his name? Himmel. All the blue moon Himmel. Made. Yeah. yeah, so while the blue flowers are blooming on the ground and Himmel is standing, you can just see his legs kind of off screen or off the top of the composition. It is such a beautiful print. The framing of it is amazing through this like broken stone wall looking down. I fucking love this print. This is gorgeous, yeah. This one or potentially the Cowboy Bebop ones are my favorite. Yeah, good pickups. You picked up a lot, but that's not surprising. <laughs> At the detriment of my wallet and space <laughs> in my studio, yes, I did. Although now I do have a booklet of just art, half full of art now already. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great idea for you because there's never going to be enough space to put up on a wall all the art you want to. But it's given you license to buy even more stuff, I feel like. <laughs> exactly. Positive and negative, depending on your perspective. <laughs> All right, so we can talk about Japan. Let me race through the panels that we went to. And we went through a lot of panels, so I'm going to go through these pretty briefly. The first panel we saw on Friday was our Studio Trigger panning and stocking panel. And I mentioned this at the beginning when I talked about how the panels weren't as great as last year. And the one that kind of set that bar for me, and the reason I'm saying that, is because the Studio Trigger panel, I think, really fell flat this year for me. The one last year, which was the Cyberpunk Edge Runners panel, was fucking amazing. Seeing like Watanabe and seeing like Omaishi or whatever, what's his name? Imaishi. Imaishi. Imaishi was on like a fucking Skype call. He was on a Skype call, but still like seeing like Sushio do a live drawing and talk about the character designs and the artwork from Edge Runners and show original character designs and stuff like that. And the concepts art was just fucking amazing. And this year they had almost none of that. The Panty on Stocking panel this year was technically a character design conference, which was, I thought, was supposed to be a reveal for some of the character designs. And they did reveal some of the character designs, but a lot of it was still shrouded in mystery. They were still pretty close to their chest with what the new series is going to be. And that was true, I think, even from the trailer they put out. Like, the trailer was just all stuff from the previous series. And so it was unclear what this is going to be. They spent so much time just polling the crowd for ideas for new ghosts. And, like, the ideas, like, 90% of the time were just not good. I'm not going to lie to you. They were just not good. <laughs> Perhaps the most interesting one was, like, someone calling out to have a character wear Timberlands because that's, like, uniquely New York, apparently. Even then, it was, like, questionable, some of the drawings they did for, like, particular reasons, which if you were there, you could probably talk more about. But I'm not going to go into it. I would have really liked to see more content from the new series or even from the original panning and stocking like they did for Cyberpunk. We just didn't get that. That's too bad. My favorite panel, I think, was the Licorice Requel panel. This one was really well done. It had some look into character concept art. It broke down the animation process for specific scenes. Like, you've seen Licorice Recoil. You know the scene at the very end where, oh, God, what the fuck is your name? Not Shisato. Who's the other one? I'm just looking at you blankly. <laughs> okay. Takuma. Takuma. There we go. We're talking about like running up Tokyo Tower on the outside, and she's trying to get to where Makima is fighting the other guy who looks like he's straight from fucking My Hero Academia. But <laughs> where they're fighting each other, and 
they had the behind the scenes showing the individual keyframes, showing like the in-betweens, showing how the animation process goes, showing how music is added and dialogue is added to it. And that process was fucking amazing seeing in real time, as well as a live drawing. And so someone won the live drawing at the end of it, which was like such a great panel, such a great thing to put together for the crowd. Everyone was super into it. The thing I'll probably talk about the most here, this wasn't a panel, but I think the event I liked the most at all of NYC was the AMV contest. It is the first time I've been to this. And honestly, I regret not having done it before because it was so much fun. The quality of the AMVs was fucking insane. People spend so much time on these and it was incredible to see the labor of love that people put into these works. I want to shout out here Jillian from our Discord server and also a personal friend whose AMV submission got an honorable mention and was shown in the intro reel to the contest. You can also find all of the contestants and the winners on YouTube. You can find her work there as well. I want to shout out some personal favorites. My personal favorites were Fictoromantic by Ilya. In this one, the romance category, it integrated a bunch of other romance anime into Yamada-kun to level 999. And the end product was hilarious and it was sentimental and it was so well done. The winner of the upbeat category that also took home best in show was also amazing. And that was Double Take by Because I'm Bored 1. And that was a montage of so many scenes from different anime that juxtaposed character doppelgangers like Kakashi and Gojo or Hollow and Reptalia or my personal favorite, which is Revy and Misato. The editing for that one was just absolutely insane. It must have taken so much time to mask the characters from their own scenes and then splice them into other anime. And I could say that about every AMV that we saw. They were amazing. I was blown away by how talented all of these artists are. Yeah, I mean, you can actually speak to that because you actually made an AMV for our Anime NYC panel last year. And it is kind of amazing how much creativity and editing and knowledge of anime, of specific scenes, of music that you need to really craft a good AMV. I've actually never watched that many AMVs. Obviously, I've seen a few, but I never really got into those. And so next year when I'm back at Anime NYC or at another convention, I would love to actually go to that as well. We have to make this a priority next year when we go. It was so, so good. It was actually hilarious that on that Friday night, my partner couldn't make it that night because she had work. And so I had an extra ticket and I was like, you know, I have some other friends in med school that are interested in anime or not even interested in anime. So I just put up a call being like, hey, does anyone want to come with me? Anyone want this extra ticket for tonight? And a friend who is not super into anime is getting more into anime. She is like loving Jujutsu Kaisen right now. I was like, hey, do you want to come to this AMV contest? And she's like, what's an AMV? I've never seen an AMV. And I sent her the AMV that I used as a model for what I did last year. It's just the best AMV I've ever seen. It's just fucking insane. It's on YouTube. And she was like, I'm coming. This sounds fucking (laughs) sick. And literally showed up. She like cabbed it over and was like, yo, that AMV was so cool. Like, I'm super excited for this now. And I was like, damn, I fucking love this. Like, this is great vibes. And so shout out to her if she's listening to this, which you're not. But (laughs) (laughs) that was super fun. So as I said, I think my favorite panels this year were either the Licorice Recoil panel or the Great Pretender world premiere panel. Because the world premiere of the first episode with a packed audience was incredibly fun to watch. 
Great Pretender is such a unique show with its diverse cast and international scale and incredible production quality that the announcement for a second season had people really excited. I can honestly say that the first episode definitely delivers. It captures a lot of the spirit from the first season, aside from, I think you talked about the ending, and gives us more of what fans loved. The panel overall was just also really well done because it went behind the scenes and had the president of WIT, George Wada, as well as the series director and series producer, all discussing how the new season was conceived, showing off character designs, and doing giveaways for fan questions. As an aside, and I think Brennan, who was sitting next to me, would agree, we were absolutely fucking losing our minds at the questions because people, once again, they have the president of WIT Studio there. And they were asking things like, so you said this would be coming to U.S. theaters. So does that mean it's going to be a full core anime or something like a movie? Guys, you have the guy there talking about Great Pretender. You could have asked so many questions about like the diversity of the cast and like whether they have any people of those different races or cultures there as models for what they were showing on screen. You could talk about any of that shit. But no, you're instead asking, is this going to be a season or is this going to be a movie? Like... Come I actually on. remember thinking that exact same thing last year during the Spy Family panel, which George Wada was also there for. And, and again, people just asking, like, what's your favorite anime? And, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> just, like, like, really random shit like that. And I'm like, can you please ask something about the studio, about the anime production process, about the series themselves? It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's kind of how it is when you're at such a broad convention. They gave away, like, the watch that the character wears in the show and shit like that. These are like cool giveaways. And you're asking questions about like, oh my God, dude, someone came and literally asked if they could have a job at WIT. <laughs> it was fucking wild. Someone came up and was like, so tell me about the key animation process. And like, what's the process to get into it? He was like, yeah, you know, the key animation is this. And like, we usually hire people from all over. Like, we're always in need of animators. And then she was like, so like, would you take a business card right now? And he was like, um, you can go to www.witstudio.com slash careers if you want. And then I was just like, dude, are you fucking kidding me right now? Oh my God. Bad form. They had an undead unluck panel, which Love I did not form. go to. <laughs> so here's where I was going to talk about the Crunchyroll stage and Metallic Rouge. The Crunchyroll stage was new this year to Anime NYC and was located in the River Pavilion where they had community panels last year, where we did our panel last year. Yeah. And honestly, it was a good takeover of the space. They had a JJK experience. They had some cool photo opportunities with booths advertising Freerun and Numb, which is a new work by Takashi Okazaki, who's the creator of Afro Samurai. And they also had a store there. The only panel I saw at the Crunchyroll stage was the Studio Bones 25th anniversary celebration and premiere of Metallic Rouge. And it was interesting. It looks and sounds great, but I'm just worried about the scale of the plot and whether they'll be able to wrap up the large volume of lore and plot threads they hinted at in the first episode. The show, which is going to be premiering this upcoming winter season, tells the story of a futuristic society set on Mars where humans and androids now coexist. And it starts off by showing a series of brutal murders that have thrown society into disarray and questions abound about the identity of the murderer, what their motive is, and who is safe. There were a lot of themes presented in just the first episode, including inequality and discrimination, as well as what constitutes humanity. And there are clearly very strong political and religious undertones to the show. So we'll have to see where this all goes. 
I'm just not sure if within a 13-episode season, all of those things can be tied together nicely. As a side note, it was kind of hilarious that the producer for the show was there and was basically spoiling the entire show. Like, we only saw the first episode, and he was like, yeah, so the background is that there is this massive battle between, like, aliens, and, like, now humans and androids are going to have to put aside their differences, and humanity will have to, like, stop discriminating, and they'll have to work together to fight this next series of aliens that's going to come. And the members of the staff had to be like, yo, dude, like, tone it down. Like, you need to stop here. <laughs> that was fucking hilarious. Well, I'll take your word for it. We'll obviously talk more about Metallic Rouge in the winter 2024 first impressions in a few episodes. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing that that's happening kind of <laughs> soon, but, well, you know, whatever. And so the last panel we went to was the Ancient Magus's Bride live drawing with Kore Yamazaki. I have talked about Ancient Magus's Bride. I have talked about how the ending of the first season didn't do it for me because I thought it really undercut a lot of the themes and the thematic material about kind of like indentured servitude and like freedom for women and independence. It undercut a lot of those themes at the end of it, which I didn't like. I think the second season has people really excited and people seem to really like it, which I'm really happy by. I will watch that eventually. And that's why I was like, okay, let me go to this because it advertised that the mangaka was coming from Japan. This is her first time in New York City and was going to be doing a live drawing. And I was like, I love that. Kori Yamazaki is a fucking national treasure. She was so much fun. It was her first time in New York, like I said, and she's just such a sweet person. Like she started off the panel being like, listen, I'm from like the mountains from like a small area in Japan. I'm relatively rural. I don't interact with big cities and like coming to New York, it's just been overwhelming. She was like, listen, I never expected to come here and see the international awareness for my manga and how excited you all are. And like, it was just so cute to see a mangaka really cute, come yeah. and just be like overwhelmed by the community response. It was also super cool to see her drawing because unlike any other drawing we've seen before where people will do short sketches and things, she was drawing actual panels that will go into the manga in real time. And that was super That's fucking really cool. cool to see. Unfortunately, we had to leave early for that panel because we wanted to make the Crunchyroll Night of Live Music. And this was, when I talk about organizational problems with the anime NYC, this is what I mean. This was a clusterfuck. There were a fucking million people waiting by the time we even got there. The River Pavilion is the highest point in the Javits Center, right? You have to take multiple escalators up. They had a Crunchyroll DJ that was DJing on like a patio right outside the River Pavilion that actually had to like, just as soon as we got near there, had to start saying, there are too many people for this event, so it is now closed. There were no tickets for this event. There was no reservations for this event. There was no lottery for this event. And they had major artists. They had fucking Hiroyuki Sawano. They had Survive Said the Prophet. They have these massive artists and bands performing. And they have thousands and thousands of people at Anime NYC who obviously all want to come see this. It didn't make an ounce of sense how there wasn't a single reservation system or lottery system for this. And it was packed. After like 20 minutes of waiting, like 500 feet away from the entrance to the panel stage, I just left. And there were other members of the Discord community who were standing there that luckily did make it, but everyone after them just had to leave. And they waited for like an hour. The organizational system for this was a mess. And that's something that definitely needs to be improved in the future. 
we have talked about for multiple years now how the distribution of people being put into the main stage versus the panel stages just doesn't make sense. Like they had the fucking premiere of a One Piece episode in a side panel room, which is like obviously that overflowed. And so that didn't make any sense. Anyway, the last thing I want to say, and I said this before, shout out to all of the Discord members I met there, including Magical Girl Katarina, Kemi, Discord user, Super Monkey Ball, and of course, Kill V Mame. You guys make this worth it. You guys make doing the podcast worth it. I mean, Yanni and I both agree that our favorite moments, our favorite memories from doing the pod, besides us shitting on each other, are like seeing our Discord members and seeing members of our community and interacting with them in real time. And so that was amazing. We're continuing to have interesting events on our Discord now. We just started up the Baco Banter Secret Santa. It's just another incentive for people to come and join. And if you want some personalized anime recommendations, you can find that with us on our Discord. Yeah, our Discord community rules. That was a lot. Yeah. (laughs) What's new? (laughs) All right, let's talk about Japan. And the way I've organized this is going to be super freeform and I think we'll just chat about it and hopefully people get a sense for the trip and what it's like being in Japan and talking about things that people Bro, think about when they're thinking about you going to Japan. to Japan. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so I split this up into some categories. So I'll first talk about an overview of the trip and just some overarching thoughts of being there. Then I'll talk about some culture related stuff. So I might go through like some of the cities we were at and what I thought of them. Talk about things like convenience stores and things like that, which convenience is stores. Very, what very the fuck is a convenience store? <laughs> Uh, I have a whole section dedicated to food because that is a huge part, I think, of any trip to Japan. You're Nihongo Josie. You should say call me <laughs> by this point. <laughs> and then I'll have a section about anime content adjacent things, which we didn't specifically seek out, but that we still obviously saw a lot of stuff about anime in Japan. And then you just cut in, ask me questions about whatever you'd like to hear more about. Okay. The first thing I'll say overall is that Japan absolutely met and exceeded expectations. I think... Both of us have traveled quite a bit and to a lot of cool places that we've been really excited about going to. But I think for both of us, going to Japan has been some sort of pinnacle dream trip that at least I, for a lot of my life, have been very, very excited about. I'm sure it's the same for you. As people know that listen to the podcast that know me personally, I had a trip planned a few years ago that got canceled because of COVID. So I've been really looking forward to this and getting to spend just three weeks there post-graduating was Really, really great. And I think there's always a fear of, you know, I've built this trip up in my head. I'm so excited for all these different things and worrying that you're just going to be disappointed by it. And that wasn't the case at all. So for anybody that's really excited about going to Japan, it's great. It'll be a lot of fun. You should keep being excited for it. (laughs) I think that's definitely the first thing to say up front. I mean, you definitely went when it was like peak time for one of your passions, which is photography too. If you don't already follow Yanni on Instagram, you need to because he will post a lot of these things there. But the pictures you posted or you even sent to me were fucking amazing. Like the leaves changing, the pictures of Fuji with the red leaves, the pictures of the temples, just everything is so photogenic. And the season added so much to that. Fall is an amazing time to go to Japan if you can swing it. I know people always think of the cherry blossom season, but cherry blossoms are like pretty short. So there's like a very tight window and it really depends on the weather and it is hectic. Tourism is really, really at high levels during cherry blossom season. It is also at a high level during fall color season. And I'll talk about that. But if you get a chance to go, the weather's great. It's not hot and humid like the summer. There's still a lot of tourism, but I think a little bit less than other times in the year. And that was a huge 
driver for me to go at this time is that obviously it lined up nicely with thesis stuff, but being able to do photography there and kind of following the fall colors or koyo as they're called down throughout different cities was really, really fun. The momiji, the maple leaves are like the bright red that you always think about. Those are amazing. There's also a lot of ginkgo trees, especially in Tokyo that give that bright yellow color. And fall is just a little bit more forgiving than the sakura season in the spring. It's just a much broader window. And so if you can swing going in the fall, I would 100% recommend it. It was a really good time. You talked about your expectation and how it exceeded them. And I was just wondering, like, how much of your passion for anime and the expectations that you had built up for years colored your experience of traveling in Japan? Because you didn't go in blind. Like, you went in with a number of yeah. preconceived notions, and you wanted it to exceed expectations, right? How did that actually color your experience day to day there? That's a super good question. And I talked about this a bit with my partner as we were there. She's actually already been to Japan on two different trips. This was her third time. And I talked about this a little bit with you earlier this week. But one of the things that was really interesting to me is that Japan did not feel as foreign, quote unquote, as I thought it would. And most of the places I've traveled to have been within English speaking countries or in Europe or places I have family, like in the Middle East or South America. And so there's a lot of places that I've been to that, you know, maybe feel a little bit more foreign than in the U.S. where I've lived almost the entirety of my life. But Japan is definitely the first time I've been to East Asia or Southeast Asia. It definitely culturally feels a little bit farther to now be in a place where the majority of people are not white like I am. I don't look like most of the people around me. The language is completely different. So I was expecting, like a lot of people say when they go to Japan, that it's like, wow, it's kind of like a culture chuck sort of moment. And I really didn't feel that way. And I think part of it is due to, okay, because of the time since the Olympics, a lot of stuff has been Romanized. There's a lot of signs in English, menus in English. And even though people don't really speak English that much, you can still totally get around and just exist with English for the most part, which makes it a lot easier. So I think part of it was that, and my partner even noticed that having been now multiple years ago, that that has changed somewhat. But I think even beyond that, being exposed to so much Japanese culture throughout my life definitely made it a little bit easier because, you know, you've just seen stuff in anime or seen stuff when you've watched other videos on YouTube or just looked into going to Japan. And so I feel like I've already been exposed to a lot of the big cultural things that you might be shocked at when you go for the first time if you don't know that much about Japan. I think also living in a big city like New York, you know, you go to Tokyo and it's also huge. And obviously you're in Shibuya Crossing and you're like, wow, there are a lot of lights and a lot of signs. But it's not that crazy, right? Like New York's already a big city. There's a lot of people all the time. And so this is just a different big city. So that was something that was interesting to me that it did not feel as foreign being in Japan. It felt kind of just like another place to travel to, despite how amazing it was. And I was expecting it to feel a little bit more removed than I think that experience will definitely be different for people if you haven't had the experience of anime. And you know, yeah. if you haven't spent time looking at a whole bunch of travel videos or watching abroad in Japan or like, you know, watching a whole bunch of content about Japan, because you will go there and be like, wow, this is really different. But I feel like for me, when I eventually end up going there, I'm going to be like, I've seen this place online, I've heard about this place, and now I'm physically present. And that's why it doesn't seem so different. Yeah. That part of it still feels surreal. You're like, wow, I'm finally in Japan. But the, yeah. the foreign part was not super strong. Maybe to give people sort of a high level overview of the trip. So we did a pretty classic trip, I would say, for first timers where we started in Tokyo, flew in, spent a few days there. We then went to 
one of the Fuji Five Lakes. So you can't climb Fuji, which is something I want to do unless it's in summer. But we stayed in Fuji Yoshida, which is right next to Lake Kawaguchiko. It's the biggest of the Fuji Five Lakes, kind of the most accessible one, especially if you don't have a car. So we spent a few days there. Then we circled back, basically took a bus back to Tokyo, and then immediately left towards the other side of the country and spent a few days in Kanazawa which is a little bit more in the mountains. I'll talk a little bit more about each of these cities later, but just to sort of give the idea. Then we took a bullet trade down to Osaka, spent a few days there, then went a little further south and spent two days in Hiroshima and Miyajima. Miyajima is an island right off of Hiroshima. And then we came back to the Osaka area and stayed in Kyoto for a week. We had actually planned to take a little detour after five or six days in Kyoto and go over to a city in the Key Peninsula, which is a little bit more removed. We ended up just feeling like, okay, there's so much stuff we want to see in Kyoto and photograph in Kyoto. And going out to this peninsula without a car is really, really time-consuming. Basically to see a single waterfall and temple, which looked amazing and a lot of photographers go there, but we kind of decided to just stay a little bit more centrally located, I would say, in Kyoto and do more stuff there. Uh, and we'll have to hit that back on another trip. Uh, and then we spent a few days in Tokyo to kind of round out the trip. I think that's pretty common for people to bookend the trip with days in Tokyo and then basically do some combination of Kyoto, Osaka, maybe Hiroshima, maybe Fuji, if they are interested in more outdoorsy stuff. I mean, I joked about this, but it does seem like this trip was Kyoto at all for you. There was so <laughs> much time true. spent in Kyoto that it's funny because, I mean, I could have asked this at the end, but did you feel like the amount of time you spent in each of these places was adequate to the amount of things that were able to be done there? So the whole trip was three weeks and we spent a week of it in Kyoto. So don't get carried away with the Kyoto at all bullshit. That's one third <laughs> of the entire fucking trip. <laughs> I think yes. So I like I was very happy. I think we were, my partner and I were both very happy with the distribution of stuff on the trip and the amount of stuff we wanted to do in terms of sightseeing and photography in the fall specifically. Obviously, though, when you break it down, like Tokyo is enormous and we spent five days in Tokyo. You could spend months in Tokyo. Dude, I've lived here in New York City for fucking 13 years. Exactly. And I still haven't explored everything. Tokyo is a whole different scale, more massive. And Tokyo's bigger it's sprawling there are so many different cool and interesting little neighborhoods so obviously like no we did not have enough quote-unquote time in tokyo to really explore everything but i feel like for an introductory trip and getting to do all the things you wanted i think it was a pretty adequate distribution of things i will say opinions vary a lot on this like i absolutely loved kyoto it's my favorite city in japan i mean i'll talk about that in a second but for me it's because i have a fascination with the city i love how it blends the historical aspects with a little bit more modern stuff. It is the most scenic for fall colors and for photography related stuff that I wanted to do. I know for other people, it's like, okay, all of the main interest points tend to be really crowded if you don't get off the beaten path. And I don't care that much about seeing temples. And so they're bored within like a day or two. So it kind of depends on, you know, when you're planning your own trip to Japan, how much do you care about that kind of stuff? I don't really get temple fatigue because for me, everyone is like, sort of a new experience to be able to photograph stuff. But my partner, by the end of the week, was like, I'm done with temples. It's Jover <laughs> with the temples. You know? I didn't know that. So I think opinions kind of vary. But for me, the distribution overall was good. And I'll talk at the end of this about some of the future stuff I want to do in Japan because it is a place I'm going to want to, I think, go back to multiple times. The last two things I'll say, kind of at a high level. One, I'm going to talk a little bit more about food, but the baseline level of food is fucking insanely high. Most people that go to Japan, I think, are really excited to try the food. 
it does not fucking disappoint. And most places that you go will be amazing. We had one kind of weird sushi conveyor belt place, but otherwise every <laughs> single place we went to was very, very good. So definitely food lived up to expectations. And then the last thing is just Japan is a very dense country. And you hear about that and you hear that the tourism numbers are really high, but it's not until you go that that really kind of sets in. And not only are the tourism levels high internationally, there's also a lot of domestic tourism within Japan because it's isolated, obviously, somewhat as an island. People really travel when they have breaks within the country itself. And so some of the places are really, really packed and overcrowded, and that can be difficult. And even as a photographer, oftentimes, you know, you want the best light, you want to beat crowds, you go at sunrise, right? Like, that's the thing to do it doesn't really matter that much. Like it helps somewhat, but like some of the main locations are so accessible because you don't have to hike anywhere. You can just kind of walk up to the temple or whatever it may be that there were a lot of people and a lot of photographers at basically every place. And for me, that was a definitely a challenging, I think, experience because I don't really like the kind of photography where you're fighting a bunch of other people to get the same shot and you are like, trying to make it and wait for your opportunity so that no people are walking through your shot. And so that can be really frustrating. So it is totally manageable, but no, like when you go to Japan, you should go to all the major sightseeing places. They're totally worth it, but there are a lot of people in Japan right now. And it's probably going to stay that way for a few years. That always sets me on edge when I travel. I really do not like crowds. I try to avoid those. That's why I also try and get up early and walk around the cities before a lot of the other tourists are out. I think my favorite part of traveling is just walking around cities or, you know, going off on trails and like getting up early, getting out on the trailhead and just experiencing it in nature without other people there. And I have heard so much about how that's not even possible in Kyoto, right? Like Kyoto, you see pictures from there and the streets are just packed. There are throngs of people there. And so the fact when you told me that even at daybreak, that that's still a thing, is mind-boggling to me. And again, Kyoto is a big city. So like when you see those photos, it is of, you know, the main tourist districts in Gion and you should go there and just know you're going to have that experience. And otherwise, you know, try to get out and explore the other areas in Kyoto that are worth seeing at hopefully times when there are slightly less people. But it is tough in some places to really avoid those crowds. All right. You want to hear about culture-related stuff, food stuff first or anime first? Mm, beanies. Okay. I love food, man. If I did not have the job that I have, <laughs> I would love to be a food blogger. Like, I would love to fucking go out to places and try food. And so I want to know about the food. Okay. I'll talk about the food. And before the food, I'll talk about konbinis. Everybody, I think, before they travel to Japan, thinks about convenience stores. There's a lot of lore about konbinis. And it's because they contribute to the idea of 24-hour cities in Japan, where there are three main brands, Lawson, 7-Eleven, and Family Mart. They're basically interchangeable. I know you're going to ask me which one I preferred. They're the same. Which one do you prefer? (laughs) Bitch, you have to rank it. Rank them. Overall, we preferred Lawson, Family Mart, I think, after that. And I think we preferred 7-Eleven the least. But they are, like, all kind of the same. And I will say, Family Mart's... Fami Chicky, the fried chicken that they're known for, is unfucking beatable. It is so good. The Lawson one is Their also very the good. Their chicken's the best. 
Their chicken is the most well-known. 7-Eleven's chicken is definitely not as good. Lawson has basically a version of the Fami chicken that is just as good. But the original one is from Family Bar, and it is really good. I'm glad I told you to go out and try the spicy chicken, whatever, at Lawson's. The spicy chicken at Lawson's was also really good. <laughs> and I think what shocked me a lot about Convenies is, I don't know why, I was expecting it to be like a magical world inside of there. <laughs> Because, you know, you always hear, like, the food is so good. Like, you can just go in and you get, like, really good food. And that's true. But it is just a gas station. <laughs> like, they don't have store. gas there. Yeah. But it is actually just a store that looks like any gas station in the U.S., but, like, clean. And the nice thing, of course, is that, you know, the name is true to what it is. They are super convenient. There are so many in all the major cities and even outside of the major cities in Japan. And they have good food. We'll talk about that in a second. But also like any daily essential that you might need. You need to fax something or print something for some reason. Convenience store. You want toothpaste because you ran out? Convenience store. I was going to say medicine. They actually don't do medicine. You got to go to a pharmacy for that. <laughs> the fact that you but have like, to say everything fax is something there. just really <laughs> makes me sad that Japan is still in that fucking era. I think they are. But anything like daily essential need that you might be missing, it's going to be a convenience store anywhere near where you're staying. You can just pop in. You can get it. It's super easy. It is honestly just super convenient. And they're open 24 hours. It is kind of funny to me that famously the public transportation is not open 24 hours in all cities in Japan like it is in New York. And so it is like if you go out, you got to be aware of when the last train is. Otherwise, you're stranded and you're going out all night until the trains run in the morning. <laughs> but convenience stores are 24 hours. So anytime you need something, you can pop into one of those. The absolute must tries are three things at convenience. The fried chicken. The Japanese fried chicken at convenience is fucking unbelievable. <laughs> like, I talked about the Fabi chicken already. Anytime we like randomly wanted a snack or we had dinner and you know you have to get used to the fact that in the US we eat big portions and the portion sizes are definitely smaller for food in Japan and Europe and in other places. So there were definitely some dinners where I just looked at my partner after we got out of the restaurant and I was like, Fabi chicken? <laughs> are we getting a Fabi chicken? <laughs> and it is honestly just amazing. It's like this really thin fried chicken with just a layer of fat, which sounds gross when I say it that way. That sounds it's really gross. So yeah. fucking good. Fat is flavor. Yeah, it's really good. Egg Sandos. Gotta oh, try this. dude. Oh my God. I want these so badly. So good. It's just this egg salad sandwich in this little container. The bread has no crust on it. They're amazing. And Lawson easily has the best of those. The best consistency in that egg salad. They're really good. You should definitely go get those. Fuck. I'm so hungry right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not helping here. And then the thing that we ate the most for sure is just onigiri, which are just rice balls. And they have a bunch of different things they put on the inside, whether it's like tuna mayo, which is easily the best one, or salmon or pickled plum. There are a bunch of flavors. Sometimes they put meat in them. There's just a bunch of different things you can find. And the thing is you can get onigiri at like an H Mart or like other places here in the US, not as ubiquitously as in like a convenience store. But unless you go to like a specialty place where it's expensive, they're just not that fresh. The rice is kind of dry. Like the filling's not that good. They're fresh at every single convenience, anywhere. And they're always amazing. I ate at least fucking 50, probably, <laughs> tuna mayo onigiris like at random times. Today. The last thing I'll say about convenience is not really about them, but they're often placed nearby. Vending machines are fucking everywhere in Japan. And it's also really nice because 
you can just pop in anywhere. You're like, oh, I, I'm thirsty. I want a water vending machine. Oh, I want to try one of these really cool drinks. They have tons of different flavors of fruit drinks, of ramune, of other things. You just pop into any of those and get them. They even have hot drinks, which actually blew my mind. Like I love the little super sugary milk coffees you can mm -hmm. get. And I've always gotten those again at like H Mart or like another Japanese grocery store and you get them and it's like an iced coffee, right? They're cold. But in the vending machines, you can get them hot. It actually just comes out hot, which... I don't know how the technology for that works, this is something but it's actually amazing. When the H Mart next to us opened up, I used to go home like every day and the bus would stop right in front of it and I would just pick up a drink. And like the ability to do that in Japan, just to go to a random vending machine and just pick a random drink where there's like the great diversity of them, I would fucking love that. I would do that every day. That's actually really dangerous because my sugar intake would skyrocket. <laughs> yeah. But those two things are honestly really convenient and nice and I wish we had them here, but we don't. Okay, let me tell you about the rest of the food. And then I'll circle back to the rest of the culture stuff. So food in Japan is fucking amazing for anybody that's <laughs> ever tried Japanese food. And I just listed a bunch of different thoughts. So one thing that is cool is that there are 47 different prefectures in Japan. And each prefecture has a specific dish that it's known for. And that makes traveling within the different prefectures actually pretty fun because you can be like, oh, what's the specialty dish here? And where can I get it? And I should try it while I'm here. So like kaiseki originates from Kyoto. That's like a multi-course traditional meal. Takoyaki, the octopus balls that you've probably seen in anime, those are from Osaka. So you should get them while you're there. Okonomiyaki is from Hiroshima. I'm going to talk about Hiroshima style okonomiyaki in a second. Yamanashi, which is where Mount Fuji is, has this dish called hotto noodles, which is actually just hot noodles. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually one of the few things that's vegetarian friendly, which I regret to inform you is going to be a challenge when you go to yeah, Japan. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I'll talk about that in a second. But hotto noodles are literally just like a kind of a thick noodle. It's not exactly udon. The noodles themselves are made from kind of like a dumpling consistency. And they serve them in like a udon style soup with like a bunch of vegetables. It's really good. And so I could go on and on listing these, but we tried to have these wherever possible. It's hard to be a vegetarian in Japan. <laughs> yeah. This is why when I think about traveling to Japan, I think about the fact that that might be a time where I have to pause vegetarianism just to experience the food the country has to offer. That being said, in Iceland, I fucking hated even the small, <laughs> small sip of soup that I took from your like fish stew or whatever it was. And... If it's anything like that, if sushi is anything like that, I notice I'm not going to like it, which is really unfortunate. There are definitely levels, right? So I know there are apps that people who are vegetarian use to try to find vegetarian-friendly restaurants. And in the main tourist areas, we did see places advertising themselves as vegetarian or even vegan-friendly or gluten-free. And so I think you can, you know, if you work hard, definitely find places. But most places at baseline just are not vegetarian-friendly. And... I have a hard time believing you're going to like sushi or like Eddie raw fish. But there are lots of other things you should definitely try. Yakitori, for example, or like anything meat-based, you should definitely give a try. Tempura is fried, so I have a hard time believing you're not going to like even shrimp and something in tempura. All those kinds of things, the sort of must-try dishes, I think. If you are willing to break being a vegetarian for the time that you were there, I think are worth experiencing while you're there. But... How easy was it? It is to a order? hassle. Ordering's not hard. Most places we went to either had an English menu, which sometimes was like 
a worse version of the Japanese <laughs> menu, but you know, it still exists and had some funny translations. We also had an app with us that you could just like take a photo of a menu and would translate for you. And sometimes it does the shitty job, but it does usually a good enough job that you can figure out what's going on. Most places also have photos. And so you can just like point at the thing you want and okay. you'll get it. So ordering's really not that bad unless you're going to like a really, really small place and they only have a Japanese menu, but that I think it happened to us one time that a place had a Japanese-only menu, and we just used the translation app and kind of figured it out. I see. The other thing is that most restaurants in Japan, there's a lot more of a culture of specialization. So when you go to a place, it's very rare, unless you're going to like a family restaurant or something like that. It's very rare that a restaurant's going to have like an enormous selection. Most restaurants are known for like a specific item. So if you go to a place, it's, it's a ramen shop or you know, they do donburi or whatever, right? They're very well known, the restaurants themselves, for a specific dish. And that actually makes ordering even easier because like, you know, you know, you're looking on Google for a ramen restaurant, you go and you're just going to get the ramen. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get something different. And on top of that, each restaurant usually kind of has a specific spin on the type of dish you're going to. So like we went to a restaurant in Tokyo that was a ramen place, and we didn't know this ahead of time, but they specialized in their broth being sesame-based, which is obviously like super unusual, but was really good and very unique. Like You're not going to get that at other places. And that also makes ordering easier, and it makes trying different local places a lot more fun. So I really like that aspect of food there. I also mentioned to you, queuing culture and lines are really, really bad, and this goes kind of hand-in-hand with the tourism and the density of Japan you like have to make reservations or be willing to stand in lines. If you just look up highest rated restaurants on Google Maps for like a specific thing, you might look at it and be like, wow, this place looks really good. It's really well reviewed. You're going to get there and there's going to be like an hour plus line, Jesus like almost Christ. guaranteed. And that by the end of the trip actually got kind of frustrating because it means every time you want to go out to eat, which you know, if you're traveling in Japan, you're going out to eat every day. It makes it kind of tiring because you're like, okay, I'm going to look up a place and then I'm going to get there and they're going to not have room. And that definitely happened to us Many times we went to places and it was just too full. The line was too long. It was randomly closed. A lot of that shit happened. And some of our best experiences were actually like places where we just ended up stopping in because we were just hungry and some other place was closed and we don't want to go that far. This place looks open. But, you know, not every place that you stop randomly like that, it's going to be really good. And so I think a big part of the trip was also partly letting go of that mindset that every meal has to be a banger and just being willing to like try random restaurants. In Kyoto, this happened to us where we like tried a few different places. They were like closed. We were getting kind of frustrated. And we looked up this place that only served oyakodon. Oyakodon is a uh, chicken-based donburi. It stands for like, uh, like parent and... Parent and child. Parent child or whatever. And so what they do is they serve you the chicken on a bed of rice with the egg as well. Mm-hmm. And it was run by just a family. There was no way, like barely anybody there. Amazing. One of the best meals I think we had the entire time there. And so it is worth just like stopping into places because, again, the level of the food at baseline is so high. But it can be really frustrating that a lot of places you end up marking as I want to go to are just kind of impossible to get into. You know, I've heard this many, many times from people either living in Japan or coming back from Japan that the bar for food is very, very high and higher so than other places like the U.S. And I'm wondering... Is that just sampling bias because you're going to places as a tourist and finding the best places? Or is there something specific about Japan why the quality of food is so much higher? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I will say like from my experience, it does seem like the level of food is higher. If you just pop into a random place that is just a restaurant, not like a specific chain or anything, 
it's probably going to be pretty good. Whereas I feel like if you were to just do that in New York, you probably would get some not the best meals if you just like went blind into a bunch of places. Mm -hmm. I think that has to do maybe with just kind of the overall standard and the quality of the ingredients that are often used. But I don't know for sure yeah. what the causes for that are. But I will say that it, I'd heard that also a lot. And I will say that that seems to be true. Again, we had one kind of mediocre meal and everything else was like pretty great. I was asking you this while you were there. And I'm always very interested to see why. I mean, again, like we live in New York City, which is a very diverse city. There are innumerable different cuisines that you can find here. Basically, everything is represented. Not everything is well represented, but everything is yeah. usually represented. And you talked about how the quality of the sushi in Japan was just on a whole different level, right? Like, I think you were telling me that you also popped into a random mom and pop shop and had the best sushi of your life ever. Yeah. What makes that so much different (laughs) than what you can find here? So I think it depends on what kind of food we're talking about. So if we're talking about just sushi. Mexican. (laughs) Actually, there were a few Mexican places. Oh, God. That we ran across in Kyoto. We were like, yeah, we're not going to that. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care how well reviewed this is. I'm not going to. (laughs) The... Italian food is also a big thing, which people do say to try, but we were not really. I have heard that, that, to be honest, but I have heard that. And I think if you're interested, it's worth doing. I think if we're talking about something like sushi. So as you mentioned, we had two kind of standout sushi experiences. One was at this small family run restaurant in Fuji Yoshida, which is the town near Fuji, where again, we were hungry. We were near the train station and there was just this sushi place, one counter run by this elderly man who's been a sushi chef his entire life and his wife. And it was very homey and we just sat down and it was probably the best sushi I've had in my life. And then we also stopped into a random place in Asakusa in Tokyo near where the second place we were staying was, which was an Edomai sushi restaurant. So that kind of harkens back to the origins of sushi, which is that historically it used to be like not this sort of upscale fancy thing you used to go eat. It used to be like a snack that you'd eat, stopping at a place quickly, get it on the road and then keep traveling. And this place was in that style where it was a one single bar with two sushi chefs but no seats. So you stand and eat all the sushi there and it's supposed to be pretty quick. You ask the chef directly what you want and then you leave. Both of those experiences were absolutely amazing. I will say for sushi specifically, I think you can get basically the same quality sushi in New York. The main difference is the ease with which you can find it and how expensive it is. In New York, it is like really expensive to eat really good sushi. And especially that Edomai place was like pretty cheap. And... The small family-run place was a little bit more expensive, but still not at the levels of New York. And generally, if you just go to like a conveyor sushi belt restaurant or something else, it's not going to be as good as those, but it's still going to be very, very good. And the quality for the price, I think, is the biggest difference with something like sushi. I think when it comes to other things, it's just harder to find. So like, for example, I mentioned okonomiyaki. So for people that don't know, there are two styles of okonomiyaki. The Osaka style that most people are familiar with is this savory pancake with cabbage and usually pork or something else. And in Osaka style, it is just mixed into one batter. And then they'll like throw it on like a hot... It's a fucking trash can of vegetables and meat, dude. Smeared with mayo. Yeah, and then it's got this mayo, like sweet sour sauce on top of it. And it's really good. And the Osaka style, again, it's like all in a batter. So you get like a singular pancake. They often let you cook it at okonomiyaki restaurants at your own table. Because again, it's just a batter. You just have to flip it, right? That's all great. You can get that in New York. We tried it when we were in Osaka. I would not say the quality difference is that insane. There's a second style of okonomiyaki, which is known in Hiroshima, where everything is layered. So they'll like do the batter without any of the other ingredients. And then they'll like layer the pork on top of that. 
They'll layer any other toppings you ask for on top of that. They usually layer an egg. They also layer noodles, like Sounds fried so fucking good. soba noodles that they'll soba. then layer on the okonomiyaki. And so instead of one batter, you get this like really nicely layered dish. Hiroshima okonomiyaki is so much better. I'm like literally <laughs> salivating right now. Like, than I, Osaka okonomiyaki. It, and that is something that I've never seen in New York. And again, it's very specific to Hiroshima. Even outside of Hiroshima, it's kind of hard to find in other places in Japan. I think that's because, you know, it is so specific, but also it's much harder to cook and make than the Osaka style. There's the like one dedicated hall to it in Hiroshima that you go to. And there are like 20 different restaurants at like all the different floors that just make okonomiyaki. You can just go to a counter, like sit down at one of them and they'll make it for you. It's fucking amazing. Another one of the best things that we ate there. So yeah, I think it depends kind of on the dish itself. Another distinctions between ramen and tsukumen. You've still never had tsukumen, right? I've never had tsukumen, but it's also usually because the broth is like pork-based or beef-based. So when you go to Japan, you should try the different broths. And again, places will specialize like the main types of broth or miso and tonkatsu and shoyu, but every ramen place kind of does it slightly differently. And so you can try all of those and that's really fun. I actually prefer tsukumen to ramen. So tsukumen is like the dipping noodles version of ramen where the noodles are a little bit thicker and you get them on the side and they're cold and then you get the hot broth that's a little bit thicker than the ramen broth and so that way when you actually dip the noodles in there the broth will stick to the noodles a little bit better you can eat that i can't fucking slurp by the way at all (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean i just can't do it were you never a child this doesn't happen i don't know (laughs) i'm like sitting there i'm like blowing in hot air like nothing's happening you gotta duck face that shit bro (laughs) and tsukubet is just so fucking good like i really like that and that exists at some ramen restaurants here but not as much as i think we found it in japan okay there's a lot of other food stuff i could talk about we had an amazing dinner for my birthday that my partner booked at a kaiseki dinner in kyoto it's a restaurant called godan miyazawa which actually had a michelin star the best meal i've had in my life You've been to some tasting menus and you know like a big part of it is them explaining to you what each dish is as you get it and then what each alcohol pairing. So we did a sake pairing and explaining all of that to you. That's hard in Japan because people don't really speak that much English. So we went to a different tasting menu and it was what you'd expect where they give you the dish and then they in some broken English tell you what each thing is. But we were lucky at this place that there was just an Australian lad (laughs) who got hired to work there as like an assistant to the chef. And... We were just having a lovely chat with him and he was explaining everything super extensively. did a really good job. So that was actually really, really nice. It would be cool if more restaurants did that. Not that they have to cater to English speaking tourists, but it was really nice for us to have that. So fucking shout out to my boy, Ethan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Other random food stuff. So yakitori, I mentioned, you got to fucking try that. Just any izakaya that you can go to and just get a bunch of snacks at. The yakitori, the skewers that you get of chicken or other meat, are really special in Japan because of the charcoal that they use. So they use a special charcoal called binchotan. And supposedly what it does is it like burns in such a way, don't ask me what the chemistry behind it is, but burns in such a way that the meat is grilled so that you get the juicy flavor without any of the smokiness that often comes when you barbecue. It was pretty amazing. We went to a yakitori place and there's like fucking steam everywhere, right? And you expect it to be like, okay, I went to a campfire or something and I'm going to go home and all my clothes are going to just fucking reek. 
And we actually left and the clothes, because of the charcoal they used, actually didn't retain any of the wow. charcoal smell, which is like actually crazy to think about. But yeah. I don't know why the rest of the world doesn't use Binchotan, but it is genuinely amazing. I was going to ask you, maybe as a transition to the cultural part as well, what was the Ryokan experience like? You really just cut off the food section. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is transition for food. Let me end that part. Try soba when you're there. Try udon when you're there. Try tempura. Try Japanese curry. It's fucking amazing, especially with katsu. Try unagi. Eel is like one of my favorite things. I don't know if, well, you might like it because it doesn't taste fishy at all because you, they just coat it in like a sweet soy sauce. Your threshold for what's fishy is just incomprehensible to me. So Also true. And then lastly, you should try some of the desserts. Taiyaki, yeah. anything with red beet filling. The pudding, bro. Oh mochi. God. We had this award-winning pudding in Shirakawa go that like apparently won the competition for the best pudding in Japan. It was fucking like amazing. I didn't know pudding could taste that good. <laughs> try the souffle pancakes. Try the Japanese cheesecake. I also realized that I actually don't hate matcha. So that <laughs> happened. Oh, now you realize. <laughs> The matcha soft serve. Oh my fucking God. That matcha soft so serve good. also very good. Yeah. The last thing I want to mention food related is that the coffee in Japan is fucking amazing. If you go to specialty coffee shops, I have rarely had coffee and espresso that tastes that smooth. It's a bit of a toss up. Like if you go to a specialty place and they have an espresso machine and make coffee, it's probably going to be amazing. But I also realize a lot more places just have fucking machines. <laughs> Don't tell you about it. So it's a toss-up, but places that specialize in coffee, that was a real highlight. Okay, you asked about the Ryokan. So the Ryokan stay we did on Miyajima, which I mentioned is the island right off of Hiroshima. So we spent uh, a night there. Really beautiful island. Even if you're not going to stay the night there, you should definitely go. They have a bunch of deer like roaming around. There's this like really famous Tori Gate called Itsukushima Shrine that you've probably seen in photos that's just floating on the water. There's a bunch of hikes and go up the cable car to the mountain. It's really, really beautiful. So there we stayed at Ryokan which is a traditional Japanese guest house. Definitely something I would recommend doing when you're in Japan. It works a little bit differently than just a business hotel. So you'll check in, you usually get a more traditional room. So we had like a tatami mat room where you sleep. On you sent futons. me a picture of being like, it's my tatami galaxy experience. <laughs> yeah, it was. That was actually a lot of fun. The futons are actually really comfortable. And I would highly recommend it. And then the highlight of uh, Ryokan's day is that the dinners and the food in general is all kaiseki style. I mean, you can sometimes choose if you get half board or full board, but the dinner will be brought out to you in like a multi-course meal, either to your room or to the central cafeteria, basically. And that was a lot of fun. That was really, really great food overall. Really enjoyed it. And a thing I think you have to do. Some of the Ryokan, which ours didn't, some of the Ryokan have private or shared onsen, which are also really nice. That's something we didn't really do our last hotel somehow in Kyoto had an onsen. Don't ask me why. <laughs> but otherwise, we didn't really do an onsen-specific stay, which I would want to do another time. Especially if you get a private one, then you and your partner can go together. Otherwise, if you're going to a shared one, you can't have tattoos at all. And you usually, in almost all places, and they separate men and women. So you can't go with your partner, which is kind of a bummer. But in a private one, you obviously I can. I can go so with you. We can go together. Hell yeah. <laughs> that was our time in Miyajima. In Hiroshima, we, we didn't actually stay the night in Hiroshima, but we spent some time there after the overnight in Miyajima. And basically, it was just eating okonomiyaki, going to the castle, and spending some time at the Peace Memorial Park, which I think for anybody that wants to be impacted by the effects of war and have a sobering part of the trip, I think I would recommend that as well. It was cool to and interesting to learn a little bit more about what happened in Hiroshima and see 
the destruction of where the atomic bomb landed and the dome that actually still exists from when the atomic bomb fell, but also to see how the city around it has revitalized so much since then already. Uh, it is pretty amazing. Definitely. I've heard many people say that it's definitely a highlight of the trip because it's such an emotional experience and yeah. they have built it up and memorialized it in such a way that it preserves a lot of the history and therefore it asks a lot of questions about where the future lies. And so I think it's just really, really well done. Yeah, definitely would recommend Maybe I'll transition to talking about Kyoto, which was chronologically after this on the trip. And that's where we had the other kind of unique stay. So most of the time we stayed in kind of regular business hotels, which were all really, really great. In Miyajima, we did the Ryokan. And in Kyoto, for the majority of the time we were there, we stayed in Amachiya, which is a traditional townhome in Kyoto. It's traditionally made out of wood. And they also usually have a tatami mat room where you sleep on the floor. You also have some kind of slight differences from a regular hotel. So like, for example, usually at Amachia, you have a little garden area and then the bathroom is like offset that. So you have to go outside and open a few sliding doors to actually go to the bathroom, which is kind of inconvenient, but (laughs) is traditional. And that was also a lot of fun. Fun? Do you say fun? Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. (laughs) Speaking of, as a brief aside, were the bidets worth it? The bidets were (laughs) (laughs) life-changing. (laughs) I wanted to mention this too, but I figured I was going to like bidets because it's like (laughs) having water clean your butt is like the logical thing, right? Why are we using fucking toilet paper? And they are amazing. Immediately when we got back, I was like, fuck, I miss bidets because you have these like futuristic looking toilets, but you know, you sit down, the seat is warm. It's not That's cold. life-changing. It's dude. fucking warm. And then you're done, and you don't have to, like, worry about, like, how much toilet paper I'm going to use. No. You hit that bidet button. You let it fucking shoot some warm water up your butt. <laughs> you adjust the pressure just to your liking. Cleans it very nice. You give it one little quick wipe to make sure you've got everything. The people that know wipe off of bidets are crazy, by the way. Like, don't <laughs> do that. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> I don't know, but if you do that, you're crazy. I want to install a bidet. 100% I need that in my life in the I future. I do have a bidet at home, and it is life-changing. The problem you have a bidet at home? home? Yeah, of course. What the fuck? The I fuck, didn't know man? that. Man, I'm not living in fucking 1922 out here. <laughs> I have a bidet at home. It only uses cold water, unfortunately, because we didn't want to pay the extra money for the hot water. It's still great. It's much better than just it's fucking dry wiping, which is like Neolithic when I think about it now. How did I do that for 20 years of my life? It's way better. The warm seat, warm water experience. Oh my God. One can only dream of such luxury. It's so great. Honestly, almost every place has them. We went to like maybe one random restaurant that didn't, but like almost every place just has an amazing toilet and it's great. Sweet God. To close out the Machia thing, so a lot of these like Machia townhouses are kind of dying in Kyoto because they're expensive to maintain and actually very flammable, which is definitely a problem. But they've actually been a bit revitalized because of the, the tourism in Kyoto specifically where like people want to stay in them. And so a lot of them have been renovated and put up as hotels or as like Airbnbs. So if you're interested in experiencing a more traditional kind of stay in Kyoto, I can also recommend that. That was a lot of fun. I loved Kyoto, as I mentioned. Just so many iconic locations, spending time in Gion or Kyumizudera or going up to Arashiyama and seeing the bamboo forest, the thousand Tori gates at Fushimi Inari, the Philosopher's Path. There's just tons of places that I've read a lot about and thought about photographing a lot in my life. And it was great. We also took a day trip out to Nara. So Nara and Kyoto and Osaka are actually really close together. So if you're not 
that interested in like staying late or you have a lot of days to spend, you can easily stay in just one of them and commute between the other two. So it's usually very easy. So we took a day trip out to Nara. Nara Park is great. And there's just deer wandering the park there. And they will actually bow to you. Like you can buy fucking deer crackers and they bow to you because they've just been like trained that they will get fed <laughs> if they do that. But it is pretty like cool to see. I was fucking scared of the deer. All of them. Like, <laughs> what? Why? My partner was out here like feeding them, getting excited. I was like, this bitch is going to attack me. What? <laughs> I need at least five feet deer, of distance. Dude. This between isn't me and fucking the deer. <laughs> like out here. I was imagining getting suplexed. Like a <laughs> okay. Very quickly. Let me just say the other uh, cities we went to. So Tokyo, as I mentioned, is just a huge metropolis. We stayed the first part of the trip in Shinjuku, the second part in Akasaka. What I like most about Tokyo is the different vibes of the neighborhoods. I think it is such a big city, but it is so spread out that each neighborhood does really feel different. So going back and actually getting to explore some of those would be a lot of fun. We also went to the Team Labs Museum, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of because it's super Instagrammable. It was nice. I had not heard about this. You can do it if you want. You know, it is the most visited museum in the world dedicated to a single artist or art group. It's a very specific thing, but okay. I mean, like, it exceeds the visits to the Van Gogh Museum. It's crazy. It's kind of wild, but it was nice. It wasn't mind-blowing, but it was nice. If you have a chance to go down to Fuji, it was amazing. Really overcrowded near Lake Kawaguchika, which is kind of expected, but Fuji Yoshida is actually a lovely little town, and we had a really good time staying there and just kind of walking around and being able to see Fuji. That's another perk of going in November in the fall is that Mount Fuji's out a lot more than other times of the year. And going back, I definitely would like to see some of the other lakes, but those are harder to get to without a car. So, How was it commuting between all of these different places? So public transportation is another thing that I wanted to talk about. Public transportation is really good in Japan. It runs super well. You know, if you have a huge delay, it's like two minutes. <laughs> like you'll go on to Google Maps and be like significant delays and then your train comes like 90 seconds late. <laughs> so things really run almost always on time. They are really quiet. So like people don't really talk on trains. And that is definitely something that is strange coming from New York. The Shinkansen, the bullet trains are excellent. They are quite expensive. If you get the Japan Rail Pass, which now is a lot more expensive for people, but they are really great. You can get from Tokyo to Kyoto or Osaka in like a few hours. Runs really fast. It's really convenient. You just book your seat. You grab your train bento, your ekiben, uh, which are fine, but you should try them when you're there. And it's a really nice experience. It's super smooth and they're really, really fast. It's really cool. Pisses me off. The U.S. is so backwards. We're so backwards. here with this. Like I had to go to D.C. for this conference that you've heard about. And Amtrak is more often than not delayed. And the delays are not 90 seconds. They're like fucking five hours. Like this is genuinely insane that it takes me if I were to drive to D.C., it would take me like six hours. The train when we left D.C., right, we decided, okay, we want to get home early, so let's take this train. Let's move it up from – we were supposed to leave at like 8 a.m. the next morning. Let's move it to like 9 p.m. the night before. So we get to the train station at like 8.30. Train's already delayed by an hour. Okay. They have us line up. And then we're like, okay, it's 10.30 rolls around. We go down to the platform. It's 30 degrees out, by the way, and the platform's outside. The train is just sitting there. It's not letting anyone on. We stood there for an hour and a half because this train somewhere along this route had run into a car and it had destroyed, like it broken one of the sides of the cabs. 
We were three and a half hours delayed on this fucking train ride. And that is more common than not. So to hear that Shinkansen run with like literally zero minute delays is fucking mind boggling to the average American mind. It is actually sad that we don't have these things here. It is just amazingly efficient. Like it shows up exactly when it tells you to. It'll let people on and then it's fucking gone. And if you are not there, it'll leave without you. Did you have that experience where you like shoved onto a train? No. There were some like really crowded buses, especially in Kyoto, because just the bus system and the public transportation system there is not as, within the city, not as well-developed as the one in Tokyo. And there are just too many tourists right now. But we never got shoved on. (laughs) So that was nice. (laughs) I will say in general, also, that the public transportation, just the cities in general are really clean. And I'm sure you've heard that about Japan before. But it is actually amazing when you're just walking around. There's like no trash. And if there is any, there's like a public worker like cleaning it up just doesn't happen that there's litter or like trash or anything. And for a country that is so clean, it is amazing that there are no fucking trash cans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the expectation is you take your trash home with you, right? But it's so annoying. You get something from the convenience, you just eat it near the convenience, you throw it away in the convenience. That's what you have to do. But if you're getting something on the go or you take it with you, good luck finding that trash can. (laughs) I have heard the expectation in Japan is that you eat your meal at a specific location, and then you throw it away. Like, you don't eat on the go. As no, you, you don't eat while it. walking. That's yeah. definitely true. So still doesn't really make sense that there aren't more trash cans, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> Last two places we went to, just to wrap that up. So we spent some time in Kanazawa, which has a really famous tea or geisha district called Higashi Chaya. Very, very cool. Not a place that I think a ton of people go to, but it's a little bit more mountainous. It's known as, like, kind of an alternative to Kyoto that is way less touristy. We loved it there. We also took a day trip out to Shirakawago, which is a historic town in the mountains of Japan where they've preserved these like grass roof houses. And that was also a highlight of the trip for sure. It's just spending a day there. And there were tourists there, but there was also locals still living there. So it feels like more of a lived in town and uh, really, really kind of unique views. So we recommend that. And then Osaka is fucking chaotic. You know, a lot of people go to Osaka and they love it because of the nightlife, because of the food. I think it's known typically as Japan's kitchen. And so we spent time there just going to different street food vendors and getting food in Dachonbori. We actually hit the castle there, which is really pretty, and took a day trip out to Himeji Castle, which is probably the most famous one in Japan. So I had a good time there too. Okay, let me wrap up the culture stuff, and then we'll talk about anime for uh, the last little bit. So I mentioned the language barrier. I was surprised at just how low the level of English is because it is mandatory for people to learn it in schools. And we were talking about this, and I do think it is partly that the education for English is not that great. Um, I think that's one piece of it. But I think the other piece is that Japan is, again, an island and kind of isolated. A lot of people just stay in Japan. So you know they might learn it in school, but then they don't go to an English-speaking country. They stay in Japan, and so then they never use it again. Despite that, you really only need a few words to get by. Learn how to say thanks, learn how to say excuse me, maybe a few other things, and you're good. really don't need that much else. That does make it pretty easy. One story that I told you about in Kyoto is that we were at a breakfast place, and similar to what I just said, I'd picked up a few phrases, and uh, we'd finished our breakfast and wanted to get the check. And my partner had been asking for the check a lot, so she was like, can you fucking do it for once? So I was like, yeah, okay, I guess. So I flagged down the waiter. You have to like kind of flag them down. They won't really come ask if you want the check or anything. And I'm just like, sumimasen, okaike onegaishimasu, which is literally just, excuse me, can I get the check, please? And so he like nods his head, brings the check over. And as he brings the check, he's like, you speak Japanese? (laughs) And I was like, not at all, but thank you. (laughs) He's like, 
you know, you said all those words together. It's just like, it sounded really good to me. And I was like, I speak no Japanese, <laughs> but I appreciate it. First of all, I will say that the U.S. has piss poor language education. Also, it's true. To be judging Japan for its low English is really, really sweet coming from the U.S. here because of the fact that our language education is very bad. We do not place an emphasis on it. And we also, for some stupid reason, pride a lot of people in the U.S., pride themselves on the nationalism of speaking English here in the U.S. And politically, the last few years have been very, very bad with this, where the U.S. has maintained or even exceeded the levels of nationalism that we've seen in the past. When either immigrants come to the U.S. or visitors come to the U.S. traveling and they don't speak English, a lot of people from the U.S. will judge them and will ask them to be like, no, you have to order in English. And that's bad, right? And I was wondering, did you find that same sentiment in Japan? Were people judging you for not being able to speak Japanese or were they very okay and kind of accommodating for the fact that you yeah. didn't speak Japanese? I should just clarify, when I say the level of English is poor, I don't mean that as like a, damn, they should learn more English. No, no, of course not. Me. Not you. It was more a fault of Americans thinking yeah, that yeah, way you know, for I, other people. I get yeah. what you're saying. I'm just trying to clarify that I don't feel like that needs to happen. It's going to be the next Twitter controversy. <laughs> I'm not clipping that. But no, I felt like actually people were just amazingly kind. Pretty much everybody understood that you don't speak Japanese and that you're going to need to point at things and you're going to only be able to say a few things. And, you know, they actually get pretty excited often when you do say the few words that you know, like the story I told about just that one waiter. And so we really didn't feel any kind of judgment for not being able to speak Japanese. And I think for the most part, that's what people tend to experience. That people are just really kind and overall welcoming. And there's very few places that you're going to get turned down from just because you don't speak Japanese. It does happen. I have heard at some restaurants. didn't happen to us. But otherwise, I think people are very understanding, which is really nice. Did you go to any bars? We actually did not. So that was one oh. thing that we really wanted to do, that we wanted to go bar hopping and do a few nights out in Kyoto and in Tokyo. But my partner was sick actually a lot of the trip. So it just ended up not really being a priority. But yeah, next time. Yeah, I remember Brennan talked about making friends with people just by sitting at bars and chatting. And that seems to be like a quintessential experience, especially as a solo travel if you're Definitely. going to Japan, just sitting in an izakaya or, you know, at a random bar and just talking to other people, uh, especially if they can speak English. Yeah. And you should do that. You know, if you're going, especially if you're going solo, you want to just make friends, just chat to a lot of people. And I know a lot of people have that experience, but yeah, we didn't specifically on this trip. Let me talk a little bit about anime stuff. So I'm going to caveat this by saying that I was not very driven to seek out anime specifically on the trip. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, when they go to the Japan, they're like, I'm going to buy so much merch. I'm going to, you know, go to all these collab cafes, which apparently have horrible food. Or I'm going to do like a pilgrimage where I like go to all the real life locations from a favorite show of mine. That's all really cool. That's great. It was just not my priority. I was way more interested in the photography, in the culture, in the food. And those are the things I have always wanted to do and see in Japan. And I feel like I have enough anime merch and opportunities to get stuff here. However, it was cool to see, I think, anime more integrated into just general society. So just in random stores and marketing, you will see anime everywhere, especially in Tokyo, but also in other cities. We saw tons of all the seasonal shows. So, you know, Freer and Spy Family, Apothecary Diaries, there's always getting advertisement. There's a lot of stuff and merch for Shonen, as you might expect. JJK, the big three, kind of at every place. But the two series that we saw the most of, which might not surprise you, were Eurocamp and Bochi the Rock. 
every fucking store you go to, there's a huge section dedicated to those two shows specifically. That's really which surprising, actually. I think Eurocamp goes to show maybe the differences between what we perceive as popular here, what's actually popular in Japan. But that definitely struck us. There was also a few experiences we had at some local restaurants that had really big manga collections. So we went to like a Donbury place in Kyoto or this small cafe in Osaka that just had like big manga bookshelves that you could just flip through, which was cool. At another cafe that we were at in Kyoto, this older gentleman that ran his little cafe had a photo with and signed print of Osamu Tezuka just having coffee at his place, which is like fucking crazy. Unbelievable. There's also just other random collaborations. So like we had and participated in this stamp collecting event in Shirakawago that was Higurashi themed because Higurashi is based on a town that's very similar to Shirakawago. I think we were like the only people doing that. Everybody else was <laughs> walking around and we were like, we must get whatever this prize is. It was like a fucking postcard. And the guy who gave it to us at the last stamp place we went to kind of gave us a, I can't believe you guys are doing this look, but you know, it was fucking- Just for like five-year-olds coming yeah. there. <laughs> There are also tourism waifus everywhere. Little characters they made up like for, you know, tourism at Mount Fuji. And then you'll see standees for it and stuff everywhere. So all that is like more integrated into culture there. We also, of course, visited Akihabara, which I would recommend if you're an anime fan, just definitely do it and dedicate some time to just going into the different stores there. We went to multiple anime department stores like Mondarake uh, or Animate just to look at the figures, look at merchandise, the things we bought on the trip. So... We bought another Totoro plushie. Like, you know, we have one of those at home. We bought one of the white Totoro, the little companion one. So it'll go with the one that we have. I bought a Bochi the Rock like production book that we found at uh, an animate. I found a few Shikishi boards that were Monogatari Fofan artworks, actually. Uh, he's one of my favorite artists. And I don't really see his specific Shikishi boards in a lot of places. So running into those is cool. And I'll show you this later. There was one place we went to that had the actual scarf that Rin from Eurocamp wears. What? Like literally just the scarf itself, like no branding, no nothing on it, but just the actual replica of the scarf. And I was like, I'm buying it. <laughs> I'm getting it. So I bought that. But I think during all this shopping, I kind of realized I have a real preference for just unique collaborations and like cool things like that. So whenever we'd see like a little pop-up shop or like the Kyoani stuff that I'm going to talk about, that really got me excited. But just trying to buy more merch, you know, again, if you maybe live somewhere not like New York and you don't have a lot of opportunities to go to cons or order merch online, maybe that's more exciting. But for me, that was not really a big deal because I feel like I can get a lot of it here. And so we ended up just kind of buying things as we went. That felt exciting. In Kyoto, we did go to two different things that I was very excited to go to. One of which was the Kyoani pop-up shop that they set up in Kyoto Station. Kyoani used to have an actual physical store. They shut it down a while ago, but luckily they had just opened this pop-up shop and it was really cool. They had an exhibit for Hibika Euphonium because of the movie, the side story movie that just came out. And they had the actual instruments that all the different characters play with like a little bit of writing and stuff next to it but then they just had a bunch of merch from like all their different series it was mostly postcards and some production books and other things like that but it was just cool to have a whole store dedicated to Kirani specific stuff and then there was a collaboration event because of the new season of UFO at Kyoto Tower and that was really really cool because we went up and they first of all the tickets even to go up Kyoto Tower are like themed by the characters themselves which was also fun and they had a store where you could buy some merch. So I did get a cool collaboration poster with some characters in front of Kyoto Tower. But then the whole exhibit before you go up to the observation deck was UFO themed. So they had music from the show playing 
just throughout the entire day. You could go and there were different standees of the characters. And there were like basically like little exhibits you could go to for each of the seasons showing different screenshots and like other production materials. So that was a lot of fun. I remember you posted a picture of this and I was like, (laughs) I can tell this man's on a different planet right now. (laughs) I definitely ascended to a higher level of existence. And then I think the last sort of anime adjacent thing is Gachapon. If you don't know what Gachapon is, they're just like little fucking boxes you see everywhere that just have like little capsules that come with like either keychains or little character standees or anything like that. You'll see them everywhere, right? And they're really cheap. It's like, you know, 200, 300, 400 yen, uh, which is not that much. You stick a few coins in and you get some gacha. And this is where I'm going to tell a pretty funny story. I'm a gacha game player. I know how to be smart about this. Uh, And we were trying to be selective with the gachas that we played. And so we kind of said, okay, we're going to play a few kind of throughout the trip. If we see, you know, a series that both me and my partner like, and the character designs look cute, and there are a collection of characters that we like that we're likely to get a figure that we're actually happy with, then we'll do it. And that's what we did at first. We got like a really cute little Pochita. We got like a Yor. And we were like, okay, we're being strategic. We're like playing one time. You're going to be a whale by the end of this. And then during our time in Akihabara, we actually saw these really cute Freerun keychains. But they were all sold out of the one of Freerun that I actually wanted. So we were like, damn, that sucks. The next day, we're wandering around and we see these Freerun keychains in a gacha machine. (laughs) And it's a store dedicated just to these little gachapon machines. And so we're like, okay, let's give it a try. So we give it a try and we roll like the one of Freerun stuck in the mimic chest, which is actually the one that I gifted. Oh, you. yeah. And we were like, okay, that's like really cute, but I still want the one of Freerun herself. <laughs> Surely we can give it another try, right? We roll another one and we get the exact same one. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, fuck. <laughs> and, you know, we were planning to play a few other machines, but we had a little bit of. Of course, you went in again. Change left. We got fucking Aizen, the dwarf guy, three times in a row. (laughs) (laughs) You tried this thing five times? There are like 12 different characters. We got him three times. (laughs) They know everyone wants free run, so they stack the odds against you, man. That's a five star. You're rolling for the five star. Okay, so then we've used our coins that we had available. We stepped to the side and we're like, okay, we should probably stop, right? Like, this is a bit ridiculous. The addiction setting in. We're sitting there with our fucking three Aizens. And these two other like Japanese high schoolers like roll up. And they're also seemingly really interested in the free run gachapon. And they roll like two or three times between the two of them. And they seem to get a bunch of different ones. And we're like, how the fuck did we get all the Aizens? That seems unfair. <laughs> so at that point, it's a sunk cost and it's fucking lost. So we exchange some more fucking bills. We go back to the thing. Oh and... God. My partner played like three or four more times until we actually got the free run thing. So we actually got the keychain that we wanted, but now we have like eight different fucking things, including <laughs> three repeats of this Aizen. And we're like, what the fuck do we even do with it? We don't even want these. Like, what do we do with them? And so we're about to leave. And my partner's like, you know, we saw these kids and they were really excited about the free run thing. And they had at this point gone back to the machine again. And we were like, you know, maybe they don't have the Aizen since we fucking took all of them. <laughs> so why don't we like try to give it to them? So we're like being all antsy about this. My partner even writes into the translation app on our phone, like, do you want this? You guys are overthinking this so hard. Just walk up to them and give it to them. So we eventually muster up the courage. We roll up to them. And my partner 
has the keychain, one of the eyes and keychains in her hand, holding it out to them, and then holds out her phone, which just says, like, do you want this? I have never seen a more perplexed face in my life than what this kid gave us. And he looks at it, and he stares, and then he accepts it. So he's taken it. We're like, okay, great. Got rid of one of the fucking eyes. And so we turn around to start leaving. And as we do that, he like turns to his friend and he just goes, Nani Disco. <laughs> what the fuck? And we were so fucking embarrassed. But like, yeah, obviously these random fucking tourists just rolled up to you, handed you this fucking random gotcha that you were playing, and then just fucked up. <laughs> No other context. I think that's pretty nice of you, though. I, it's not that, like, crazy. I don't think it was that crazy, but it was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> you got to the fucking Nani Desco. That's hilarious, though. Yeah. Anyways, to wrap up that, we also played a bunch of crane games and arcade games. That's definitely something you have to do. Did you win anything interesting in the crane games? I actually won a Kirby. Wow. <laughs> plushie. Did you have to ask the attendant for help? Or? No, no. I won wow. it all on my own. I was very close to winning a little Pachita plushie, but... I lost that one too many times to keep playing it, but the Kirby one I won pretty easily, which was great. Nice. So that was a lot of fun. Definitely go to an arcade and play some of the games. We talked so there. much about Kyoto and you know different aspects of Kyoto, and I wanted to ask about Tokyo because that's where a lot of tourists will also go. How different did you feel the different neighborhoods were? Did you feel like there was a clearly different separation or divide between a lot of neighborhoods? And what were your favorite parts of Tokyo? Yeah, they were super different. So like a lot of people, when they go spend a lot of time in Shinjuku or Shibuya, would definitely recommend staying in one of those. And I preferred Shinjuku, but you know you can stay in either because just a lot of the stuff you want to do is in that area. If you want to go out, if you want to see the crossing, a lot of other key highlights, you want to stay there. And that makes a lot of sense. The second time we were in Tokyo, we opted to stay in Asakusa, which is more of a historical kind of laid back neighborhood. It's right near Sensoji Temple, which is also a highlight. That was more tricky to commute because a lot of the other things you wanted to do were further away, but we really enjoyed being in a more laid back area. And so that was also a lot of fun, but the neighborhoods are super different. And I think a big part of being in Tokyo is actually exploring those and trying to get around. And so I can't really speak to many other neighborhoods beyond the two that we stayed in, but I think they are quite different and you can feel how sprawling Tokyo is. Do you have any tips for first time travelers? <laughs> Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) This guy just hit us with the fucking hags, guys. Hags. No, I mean, it's a great place to travel to. I mentioned that I want to go back, and I think I will go back many times throughout my life. I think the main things I want to do is, you know, one time just brave the crowds to go back for cherry blossom season. I really want to go back and explore some of the other parts of Japan. So I'd like to do one trip dedicated to Tohoku or Hokkaido, which are north of Tokyo two islands north i'd want to do a trip south and like go to kyushu or okinawa and there are a bunch of different activities i want to do like i want to climb fuji at some point i want to hike the nakasendo trail which is in the mountains of japan uh, i know you have a lot of interest in cycling the shimanami kaido the inland sea routes kind of near hiroshima that looks like a ton of fun so there are lots of reasons i think to go back and so i think just be excited about going there's not really that much else to say it is for me at least kind of like traveling to any other place And I think the things that you are excited about, seeing anime everywhere, trying all the food, going to Tokyo and Kyoto and Osaka and all these places, it does just live up to at least what I was expecting. And it's a place I can't recommend to going enough. Don't let the amount of tourism 
be off-putting to you. You're going to have to brave crowds and you're going to have to, you know, learn a few things in a language you don't know and be open to maybe trying different foods. But that's, I think, all part of the experience. I can't wait to go back already. <laughs> I don't know when, but I'd like to go back. I mean, as soon as possible. We have, you know, other trips we also want to do. So you have to try to balance those things. But I definitely do want to go back. I can't wait to go, period. Yeah, you do have to. I need to be there just to watch you fucking try sushi. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually funny. I remember I was talking about this with you and your partner, and it's hilarious that even you didn't like everything. And so I'm really worried. Like, if I don't like it, what's going to happen? Like, are they going to fucking assassinate me on the spot? Like, No, they won't. I mean, sometimes when you go and you just order sushi and it comes in like a plate, you're going to get some things that are not great. Like, we don't particularly like squid, raw squid. I had in one place this like clam shell thing that was not good for me. <laughs> But if you can order your own stuff, you know, tuna, salmon, those kind of things are generally very safe and it's very easy to order those things. But I would, for people that do like sushi, try to also be open-minded and try different things. Anyway, there's a lot more we could say about Japan. We're going to be late to this movie. <laughs> we don't leave. <laughs> but maybe this is a plug to join our Discord server if you want personalized answers to your questions, you want to see photos, you want to ask me more about the trip or get recommendations or advice for your trip. We have other people on the server that have also been to Japan. So uh, we have a dedicated travel section to talk about that. So that's the plug for the Discord. That's been it from us for the kind of catch-up episode about Anime NYC <laughs> in Japan. Our next episode, we're already closing out the year talking about our mailbag. So please submit questions either on our Discord server you can email us, bakumanderpod at gmail.com. Reach us on Twitter. Can undead unluck subreddit? <laughs> Tell them to contact us, please. You can also just follow us on Twitter at bakumanderpod. You can submit your questions there just by a DM or via comment. Any of those locations, send us your questions. Uh, and we'll answer as many as we can get through in the mailbag two weeks from today. Otherwise, check out our website, bakumanderpod.com. And subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts or Spotify are the main two locations. And if you use either of those, please leave us a rating and a review. Helps out the show a lot. I actually haven't checked. Has our rating gone down? I don't think so. We didn't get review bombed oh. <laughs> somehow. That would have been interesting. <laughs> that would have been bad. <laughs> All right. We're going to go see a new Miyazaki movie. We'll talk about it probably a little bit in the next episode. That's been it from us. We've been the Baka Banter lads. We'll catch you all in the next one. Bye.